I mean, coming off the heels of like 2001 A Space Odyssey, ships uh, having weirdly humanoid yet still AI, AI is, I'm like, you know what, at this point, I'm fine. Sure, I think the hell scene would have been more awkward if he had to be like, open the pod bay doors, daddy. So, you know, <laughs> overall. Oh, this is already. <laughs> I'm sorry, baby girl. I'm afraid I can't no, do that. No, no. <laughs> taking psychic damage in real Yay. life. Yay. Uh, <laughs> he checks the systems of the ship, Mother Dearest, landing on its interface. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, the podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Richardi, and I am joined today by my dear friend, Red, of Overly Sarcastic Productions, also known as Kiana, the uh, wayward monk in Rolling with Difficulty. Red, welcome to the show. Howdy, howdy. How's everybody doing tonight? I would say doing great, but uh, we did watch some classic 70s space horror. Yeah. So I'm a little bit uh, on edge. We're recording this right before my bedtime, so I'm thinking Uh maybe we're going to go chase this with an episode of the Golden Girls or something, but but that's, that's a problem for later. Red, I have a question for you. Uh, yes. What movie did we watch? Well, uh, we watched Alien, the 1979 space horror classic. Uh, mm-hmm. As a form of, I'd like to think, atonement for how I made you watch Jupiter Ascending <laughs> the last time we did one of these. Um, because yes. uh, as a rule, I don't like horror. I'm a, I'm a big weenie about it. It, mm-hmm. it just gets in my head and then sits there and like, I think I'm fine. And then the ice maker goes clunk in the other room and I nearly concuss myself <laughs> falling out of my chair. It's a bad scene. Um, but Alien is one of those classics that I felt like I had this sort of literary obligation to watch at some mm-hmm. point because it, it, I mean, you know, anything that defines a genre and spawns off legions of imitators is doing something right. So, right. and when you're doing, you know, the space of broad media analysis, which is allegedly what I do for a living, um, <laughs> You know, it's good to know the big waypoints, you know, the things that actually reshape the playing field. And Alien is pretty much the most iconic space horror movie ever made. Like, there are others, but Alien is the one that they're all trying to be, kind of. Except for 2001, because it came first, but that's okay. Right. Yeah. My comment to that was going to be 2001 is probably the only other example of space horror, and that's obviously working with a slightly different um, monster, but they both address very similar themes. Mm. Um but I was I was very happy when you chose Alien because I haven't watched it in a while and uh, like you mentioned it's kind of one of those classic space yeah. it, it's a classic genre defining movie and it's incredibly well made so it's always always worth a watch and it was also in the complete opposite direction of Jupiter Ascending while still being a sci-fi <laughs> movie so I yeah. have to give credit to that <laughs> yeah uh, but Alien 1979 opens with very subdued titling bringing us in as we get some of that classic 70s early 80s sci-fi space aesthetics. I, I find something really interesting about Alien and a lot of similarly timed uh, sci-fi projects mm-hmm. is that um, to compensate for the special effects of the period, because, you know, CGI and all that was not nearly yeah. as the developed what? as it is nowadays, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, they they often use shadows and clutter to kind of compensate for what could otherwise look very Star Trek, very hokey. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of love that because here they really use that to their advantage and they actually weave it into the mood and plot in a way that makes it both feel very natural to the movie for it to look so uh, cluttered and shadowy and difficult to make out Mm -hmm. and also then saves them from 
aging poorly in a way. And it's sort of when you see the shark in Jaws, it's very obviously a puppet. And it was great at the time. I love Jaws. It was great at the time, but it does take an element of fear out. Yeah. And the alien, spoiler alert, in Alien <laughs> is still very, very scary looking because you never really get a clear shot of it and the ship and the location that it's placed into are so difficult to define in and of themselves and it's just very emblematic of this period of uh, production design for sci-fi and it's incredibly effective for horror and that's part of why I think yep. this movie and 2001 A Space Odyssey and Aliens and you know other such movies in this genre and time space uh, have held up as well as they have for the horror aspect of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to bring I would maybe that put, up. put like the thing into this uh, <laughs> category as well. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, the uh, the specific, the effects on the xenomorph, that's something I want to discuss mm-hmm. a little bit later uh, because yes. what I, uh, for context, what I did was I watched Alien back to back with Aliens. I, I just mm. sat down and did a full movie night with the both of them. Uh, so I have nice, some thoughts nice. on the VFX they use <laughs> for the aliens, the, the, the xenomorphs specifically, that that we'll get into once yeah. we're past the establishing shot. <laughs> um, yes, yes, that, that's a good note, because aliens did come out, like, I think it was like 27 years or something later, no, uh, so obviously. Not that much it was, later. It was like, uh, it was like 86 or something like that. Sigourney Weaver's not that much older in that movie. Oh, yeah, 86. Let me, okay, let, me, let me just make years, sure, though, I don't want to mislead our lovely viewers. I'm confusing uh, it with Alien Resurrection, which came out oh, in 1997. Oh, God, no, Aliens come on. came out in 1986. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was still a significant jump, though, in terms of special effects. Uh, the 80s were really big for the development of both practical and uh, more computerized effects, so it's not too surprising that they did some changes in the sequel. But we should talk about the movie. At- <laughs> <laughs> what, we don't want to talk about this, the greebling on the spaceship model they use for that establishing shot? <laughs> Oh, you know I do, but we gotta talk about the dull rattling sounds that play as we fade out of the very difficult to see uh, Nostromo. Luckily, mm. this this ship of ambiguous, nebulous shape uh, has helpful text on screen to tell us its stats. It's got a crew of seven, it's got 20 million tons of mineral ore in its cargo, and it is currently en route to Earth. Yeah. Inside the very industrial halls of the ship, it seems that no one is stirring, there's empty control panels and uh, the halls allow the camera to just silently pass through as we see all the very shady nooks and crannies and technologically jumbled halls of the ship. As the camera sort of, this is a very nice beautiful tracking shot, the camera spins around, there's a quiet clunking and rustling to let us know that we are not alone. Oh, and God. as we move... <laughs> I, I don't think I was paying that much attention to the sound design. I was just too busy being like... Don't freak out. Don't freak out. The monster's not even here yet. It's going to be fine. (laughs) Yeah, so that's actually, this is as good a point as any to talk about it. The sound design in this movie is incredible, and it's incredible because there's almost none of it. (laughs) This movie is so eerily quiet that every single little sound puts you on edge, and it's maybe the most effective use of silence I've ever seen in horror or otherwise, um, because it does. It it makes you question if every little rustle that, that is allowed through the soundtrack is the xenomorph or just yeah. someone's feet scuffing on the floor there's also, virtually no music on a similar note the set designer so I, I obviously i wasn't going into this watch blind you know alien has been mm-hmm. a par- part of pop culture for like twice my lifetime yeah yeah <laughs> so it's it's been a hot minute um but uh so i knew what a xenomorph looked like and i swear to god Every single bit of set design in that movie is designed to tap into your brain's little periodelia center of, of pattern recognition and be like, it's totally right over there. Like, they've got these Absolutely. This tubing they use, this, like, corrugated black tubing that just hangs down from the ceiling, and it looks like the xenomorph's spinal column and tail. 
and uh, mm-hmm. they've got these these panels on the walls that have these like triangular uh, inserts that look like the xenomorph's head from an angle, and it just kind of yeah, it, it's it's all got that sort of HRGJR sort of pattern of just everything is sort of like a spinal column and everything is sort Mm -hmm. of rounded and weird and that means that when the alien is on board it blends in wherever it is but this is an effect that they kind of don't perfect until aliens so i'm gonna sit on that until we get past (laughs) the establishing shot Ah, i'm so bad at this (laughs) no no the people love this it's okay um We move in on a a helmet and console, which suddenly springs to life, the computer outputting a bunch of data and distorted clatter, as elsewhere in the infirmary, I kept writing it as medbay in my notes, in case you can't tell, I was a classic sci-fi fan, so this movie was very difficult for me to differentiate in terms of ship locations, but we'll get there. The door uh, opens up to reveal a series of seven pods, all opening, freeing and slowly awakening the sleeping crew members inside. Uh, One by one, they slowly rise up, and they begin going about their morning quote-unquote routine cereal coffee breakfast (laughs) but it's important that the camera starts by focusing on john hurt the character who wakes up first um and Mm -hmm. there's like i counted there's like three shots the camera cuts three times of just different shots of this one guy sitting up which subtly primes the audience to be like ah the main character, of course. John Hurt <laughs> is the most established of these actors. He's had a an already extensive career uh, playing various spunky protagonists in interesting scenarios. That makes perfect sense. Um, and this is the kind of thing that you forget if you've absorbed Alien through pop culture osmosis because everyone mm-hmm. knows. You know, it's kind of like how, you know, if you're watching Star Wars, the original series, you don't remember that Yoda's identity is a plot twist, you know? That like right. this this weird little Muppet in the swamp who's clearly a comic relief character <laughs> is actually the Jedi Master. Nobody remembers that because we all know what Yoda looks like. But it, this is kind of the same thing. We all know that Sigourney Weaver is the star of the show, but the movie mm-hmm. will make you believe it's literally anybody else for like the first yeah. third of the movie starting here with all this focus on John Hurt. Yes, uh, John Hurt's character name is Kane in this movie. Uh, I um, didn't kind remember of just that. A rundown of the. I I had to look it up to make sure I had all the crew straight. Um, I was just kind calling of him Baby John Hurt because he's so young. <laughs> he always I mean, kind of looks not craggy. inaccurate. <laughs> um, Sigourney Weaver is of course Ripley. That's probably the one most of the audience is most familiar with. And if you yep. don't haven't absorbed that through pop culture osmosis, I mean, you have an incredibly uh, thick cell layer. Yeah. Um, Tom Skerritt is Dallas. He's got the bushy hair and mustache. John yeah, he's the Hurt he's the beardy is, guy. He's got the beard. He's a beardy guy. Yes. John Hurt is Kane. Uh, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert. Uh, Lambert. Harry there's an interesting Dean. fact about Lambert. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want to oh, keep yes. interrupting. Apparently, on the DVD extras, they show the um uh there's like little ID screens briefly shown on camera, but you can't read mm. them of for each member. Uh, and uh, Lambert. Uh, the character is canonically a trans woman. Uh, in 1979, wow. which is very interesting, <laughs> um, and uh, handled shockingly well in the in the whole never brought up in canon, but that means it's not really bad representation, <laughs> just invisible representation kind of way. Um, but yeah, sorry, didn't want to forget that. Uh, it was just a fun fact I found when I was looking stuff up about this movie. No, that's a great note to have there. Um, Harry Dean Stanton played Brett and uh, Ian Holm as Ash and... Uh, Yafet Koto as Parker, and those are kind of the the main cast. They also do have um, cast lists for the alien and mother, the voice of the ship, (laughs) which... Shout and, uh, out to those guys. If you, if you mm-hmm. like me, do not automatically know who Ian Holm is. Uh, he's old Bilbo from Lord of the Rings. 
Yes. So yes, <laughs> he, like I, I was looking up his uh, his IMDb credits because I was kind of curious. I have a hunch that everyone but Sigourney Weaver was an established face at this point, like a household name mm-hmm. on some level. And I was right. Uh, but Ian yeah. Holm, like he's got the longest pre-alien career. He was probably the oldest cast mm-hmm. member. And he's like he he's got one of them faces where he gets cast as a lot of bad guys in Shakespeare productions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, he has but then, a like, face that you just inherently don't trust. <laughs> right. But then as he aged and got more like sweet and apple cheeked it's like oh yeah this guy can play old bilbo (laughs) that sounds Mm -hmm. fine so uh (laughs) yeah so essentially if you're watching alien in 1979 in theaters first of all your trailer has shown you nothing of what the plot of this movie is so you have no idea what's (laughs) happening and who the main character is and they show you seven people and six of them are people you recognize from stuff and you know it's a horror mm-hmm. movie because everything about it is screaming it's a horror movie. So you're like, all right, who's going to die first? Let's see, the black guy, the lady nobody knows. It could be anybody. Uh, <laughs> except John Hurt, because he's the main character, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's <laughs> twisting your perceptions. Ooh, you thought you were genre savvy, audience. <laughs> well, you were before we changed the game. Anyway. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, so the, our our cast of stars and also Sigourney Weaver gathers around the table. They joke about how they, you know they're feeling dead after coming out of cryo sleep or whatever, and hmm. kind of start landing on a conversation. Um, Parker and Brett are always trying to get a higher bonus at the end of the job that they're on, and they start talking about payments and contracts. And they're just sort of joshing around and messing around at the breakfast table, um, having woken up from deep slumber. Cryo sleep. Cryo sleep. Dallas has a message waiting for him from Mother, and everyone sort of gets up from breakfast to go about to their various duties. Dallas makes his way into this brightly lit room with various screens, taking a call from Mother, the computer of the ship. Mm-hmm. And Not he sort of weird. like checks all the... Not Freudian. <laughs> Everything's totally cool. Not super cool. spooky. Why would you think the Alien franchise has Freudian undertones? That would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, coming off the heels of like 2001 A Space Odyssey, ships uh... having weirdly humanoid yet still AI, AI is... I'm like, you know what? At this point, I'm... Fine. I think the house scene would have been more awkward if he had to be like, open the pod bay doors, daddy. So, you know, (laughs) overall. (laughs) Curse! What? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is already. (laughs) I'm sorry, baby girl. I'm afraid I can't do that. No, no. I'm taking psychic damage in real life. Yay! He checks the systems of the ship, Mother Dearest, landing on its interface. Uh, meanwhile, everyone else sort of like takes to their own respective stations looking for Earth on their monitors, but it's MIA, which is never a good sign. Mm. The gang tries to call traffic control, but no one reads them. And as they are sort of scanning and trying to figure out what's up, they find Earth. Oh, good. But they're not even in the right system yet. They haven't even crossed the like halfway point. Uh, asteroid belt, halfway point. They're, they're not even close. Uh, so why are they awake? Everyone gathers around the table to figure out what's up with their situation, and Dallas informs them that Mother woke them up early because she intercepted a transmission all the way out here in the middle of nowhere in space and woke them up to check it out. Uh, Kind of like doing a little analysis of the sounds in the transmission, they decide that it must be an SOS call, Mm. and Parker and the gang sort of argue a bit about what to do. If they don't investigate, they don't get paid, Uh, but, you know... Dallas and Kane and all are like, we're going to be heroes. So off they go to the planet to figure out what is up with this situation. What could possibly go wrong? Also, as a side note, uh, everyone is smoking all the time on this pressurized spaceship <laughs> and it's very jarring. But I, I kind of like baby. <laughs> yeah, but also like it sort of gets across the idea that like 
space travel is so ingrained into the way that things work that like this is a mm-hmm. mining vessel everyone on here like everything's kind of broken all the time and everyone on here is pretty blasé like they lose a shield at one point and they're like now nah, we're fine everyone's smoking yeah. in a facility where clearly their air is very important but they're just like whatever <laughs> and it sort of gets across the idea that this is like a sort of grimy hyper-capitalist space dystopia mm-hmm. and it's a lot of interesting just sort of environmental world building considering in this movie we never see any other human beings yeah. or any other human settlements even like this it's a bottle episode of a movie and they managed yeah, to world exactly. build the entire environment just by the way these characters act like oh you know are we gonna get paid well if we don't go off route and do this thing we're not gonna get paid oh <laughs> the company Wayland yutani what a bunch of Ugh. jerks I'm sure this is the depths of their evil, and they definitely wouldn't do anything <laughs> super villainy. Uh, yeah, so it's just it's it's a lot of really good environmental storytelling. This is a movie where like you can watch it with the sound off, and I think still get ninety percent of what's happening. Uh, yeah. And also, you won't get jump scared as much. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, so the the gang sends out their shuttle and makes for the planetary origin of the distress signal. Hitting a little turbulence, they lose the aforementioned shield in the process, and mm. the landing results in alarms blaring and a little damage to the shuttle. They all sort of scramble to figure out what's wrong, and the short answer from Parker and Brett comes that it'll take about 17 hours until they're back up and functional. As they're going to wait for these repairs, the crew hears that same SOS um, is playing on a regular schedule. And kind of as a note here, because this is the first time it really happens, there's a number of time jumps in this movie that come across from the cut to cut from scene to scene. So we mm. are down um, with, with the boys, as I dubbed them, um, <laughs> making repairs. I call them the Statler ship. and Waldorf, but the boys works too. <laughs> They're just, they are a dynamic duo of like one big personality, one small personality that always yep. seem to be paired up together uh, yeah. until an unfortunate end to one personality. <laughs> hey, hey, spoilers. You, can guess. Oh, spoilers on this, a podcast where we tell someone the entire plot of a movie yes let me throw it's about up. the pacing i'm sure everyone stands a chance and everyone's gonna get home in the end and it's gonna be great yes uh, but speaking of the pacing to progress time in this movie because it takes place over more than the two-hour runtime of the movie periodically there'll be a cut where we'll go straight from a conversation to a shot of someone just sort of like lounging around the ship in a chair and that pretty much always indicates that time has passed often mm-hmm. several hours I, it's done here, and I, I think it actually is very effective because yeah. you always have a sense of how much time has passed, and you kind of sense that dread of waiting and waiting and yeah. nothing happening, even though we, the audience, are not forced to sit there and actually wait with them mm-hmm. the whole time because yeah. of the way they execute these cuts throughout the movie. And one other thing that they're doing there is that uh, for the first, for this whole first chunk of the movie, uh, Ripley has gotten the absolute least amount of screen time. She's been in group shots, but I think at this point she hasn't even gotten a single shot that's just of her. And I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. almost every other crew member has. Uh, you know, Statler and Waldorf down below decks have mostly been seen together <laughs> hanging out. Uh, but like Dallas, uh, the captain, he gets a lot of like broody mm-hmm. shots of looking pensive by himself. John yes. Hurt gets a lot of close-in shots of his reactions to stuff. Uh, Lambert, uh, she she's sort of like currently being used as the emotional uh, canary in the coal mine, as it were. So as mm-hmm. the situation gets just the slightest bit tense, uh, we start getting more reaction shots of her looking anxious and a little concerned. Mm-hmm. Also in her file on the DVD extras is that she's prone to anxiety. <laughs> so oh. poor woman. <laughs> oh, Not the right movie an for anxious her. queen. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, but so uh. essentially at this point, the, the language of film has been telling us who's important and what we should be focusing on. So they've been building the tension very honestly, which is, okay, we're, we're stuck on this 
very inhospitable planet until we get repairs done. We're not entirely sure why we're here. The SOS has us all a little bit on edge. But who we're seeing reacting to it is not signaling at all where the movie's going to go from here, which is, I think, mm-hmm. a very fun little bit of, like, it, it keeps you totally off balance. You know, you 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 kind yeah. of assume at this point, probably, okay, John Hurt is, like, the main guy. He'll be leading the away team. He'll be blah, blah, blah. Um, but, like, you know, Captain Beardman, uh, Dallas, has also been getting a lot of focus and a lot... He's, like, very kind of, like, stern but fair and, like, uh, you mm-hmm. know, sort of keeping a handle on the crew of otherwise wild personalities. And Ripley's just this lady in the background of the shots doing her job. Uh, just about the only thing that's noteworthy at this point is she's the first person who figured out they weren't on Earth yet. Um, mm-hmm. She said, this isn't our system. And then, like, five minutes later, they're like, okay, we're not near Earth. And she's like, not our system. And it's like, yeah, Ripley. But... I think this is a red herring. I think it's setting us up to think she's a completely different character archetype, and I'll explain more why as the story progresses. Um. <laughs> Ooh, a little teaser for what's yes, to come. Yes, I'm building tension uh, expertly. Yes, yes, uh, often as the movie Alien does. Um, mm. As they continue to hear this SOS signal on a regular schedule, uh, Dallas and Kane kind of fire back and forth, and they decide that they are, in fact, within walking distance of the source, and after an atmospheric test reveals that they could, in fact, survive, Kane, Lambert, and Dallas are going to be on heading out on foot as the first group out there looking for that signal. Yeah. So that's not going to backfire at all. What could possibly uh, go wrong? <laughs> outside, the wind is howling and roaring as this planet is primordial and full of could sustain life, but just desperately, desperately cold. Uh, Ash monitors the trio from the ship as they make their way through the roaring winds. Meanwhile, down in the ducks, Parker and Brett are giving Ripley a hard time about getting paid, so she decides to leave them to their repairs and go back to the bridge. And there's a very funny bit there uh, where Parker, like, they've got steam venting out of the walls all around them, and it's noisy, and Ripley's, like, shouting over it, and uh, Parker's giving her a hard time. And then as soon as Ripley's out of earshot, Parker, like, uh, pulls down one lever and all the steam shuts off. (laughs) Uh, And there's this sort of cute little characterization undertone that Parker and Brett always exaggerate how long it'll take them to repair stuff because they're kind of lazy so like earlier uh i think uh brett says like it'll take us 17 hours to get us back in the air and parker says we'll need 25 hours at least uh as just this (laughs) cute little like they're they're mostly putting their feet up and hanging out uh and this again reinforces the characterization that ripley is the person who's getting shit done and is being very practical about everything Mm -hmm. but is maybe sort of a stick in the mud who doesn't quite get along super well with everybody else on the ship which is teasing that she's a specific character archetype especially found in horror (laughs) movies uh of the um well the stick in the mud rule follower uh the person who will maybe uh prioritize certain things like sacrifice other people to make things work for them and stuff like that and uh, that'll come to a head in an upcoming scene that i'm convinced is the ultimate red herring for who she's supposed to be because after that they start kind of making it clear what's actually happening. But uh, we're, we're building right. up to a big moment with Ripley, her first big moment in the movie, really, uh, mm-hmm. that really establishes who we're supposed to think she is at this point. Uh, back out with the crew, Lambert, who likes griping, is griping about <laughs> not being able to see a damn thing. Uh, <laughs> Ash and Ripley, meanwhile, chat about the transmission, and she tries to run it through and identify its source with Mother, which Ash claims uh, he already did, but she had, you know, Mother had no success. Um, and we get to see Ripley begin to input things with the all-important eighth crew member, an orange cat, who we'll later yes. learn is named Jones or Jonesy. And there's a subtle thing in this specific scene with Ash, which is that uh, Ripley, as she's trying to decrypt the SOS, uh, she thinks that she, the part of it she's gotten decrypted 
might not actually be an SOS and it might actually Mm -hmm. be a warning to stay away. And she says, should I go out after them? And Ash says, no, 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 it's fine. You know, they'll, it'll be cool. Everything's chill, which is the first bit where I was like, ah, so Ash definitely knows more than he's letting on. Yes. Uh, But maybe in an almost like, it's at this point a little unclear what exactly he's trying to do because we know the danger outside the ship through our secret foreknowledge of the future. So if he's keeping Ripley Mm -hmm. from going out there and facing the danger, it's like, oh, does he actually maybe care a little bit? And there's a thing very late in the movie that makes me think I was right, that he does care a little bit. But ultimately, we'll get there. We'll get there. So much stuff is happening in this movie. Yeah, and his exact way he... he Words. No. <laughs> the exact way he decides to convince her not to go out there is by saying, by the time you get to them, whatever the warning is about will probably have already happened, so you know, there's no point. <laughs> it's Which fine. is kind of a clever way to... <laughs> hide the what he's really saying which is no don't go after them which is much more sinister by itself but the framing of it is very important because mm-hmm. it does uh it, it kind of fuzzes the radar on what ash's whole deal is All right now he's just sort of a generically helpful face on the crew that's maybe a bit more personable than ripley maybe um, yeah yeah he's definitely yeah. like so far ripley has been should we do this by the book and people are like no there's no need for that and that's just been her mm-hmm. consistent interactions with the crew which kind of establishes right. her as the most like the most organized the most by the book and that's typically not a very well portrayed character type those characters mm-hmm. tend to they tend to need to learn to unwind in like more positive <laughs> framings or they tend to be like the the sort of lawful neutral to lawful evil type of like antagonist mm-hmm. where they're just like, no, the book says we absolutely cannot do this good thing that would help people. So we're sort of, right. and also at this point, remember for context in 1979, th- nobody knew who Sigourney Weaver was. She had like three credits before <laughs> this movie. Everyone else was like an established face with a, with a stock, like a pigeonhole that they'd been, uh, what, is that the right? Yes, when an actor yeah, is they're like, pigeonholed. Or, yeah, yeah, uh, they, yeah. You know, they, they typecast sto- a lot of the time. Typecast. That's the word I wanted. That was easier <laughs> to get across. Um, and then there's just this like this random lady who nobody knows who's like, but according to the manual, it's like, oh, she's fucked. <laughs> um, and they're they're sneaking us. They're they're yes. playing with our they're playing with our expectations, man. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of playing with their expectations in a sheltered cave system, the away team, which is not what they call them in the movie, but is basically what they are, with their respirators hissing, Mm. make their way in search of the transmission source and come upon another ship, much slicker than their bulky mothership, uh, which Ash helpfully informs us he's never seen anything like before. Mm. And we go into um, Lambert POV, where we watch as they shakily approach the ship. Uh, She wants to turn back, but Kane says they must go back. On, and he doesn't talk like that, but basically, he's hero. like, the, What's more into the <laughs> yeah, you know, he's into the fire, or whatever. He's got like Picard energy a little bit, yeah, uh, especially since he's leading the away team despite kind of being the <laughs> boss. Like, what's his job on the ship? He's not the captain because Dallas is no. the captain. Is he just like he's, one of the one of the gang? Uh, so later, they'll say Sigourney Weaver is the third mate or so, mm. which makes me to believe that, um. Kane might be sort of like a first mate situation. Oh, that uh, makes sense. Yeah. So so the chain sort of, of command second is second in command. Yeah. Yeah. So Dallas, then Kane, and then Ripley. That makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. Especially because with both Dallas and Kane off the ship, Ripley is in charge. So right. Okay. That makes sense. 
that's my understanding of it. It's entirely possible that's not his role in the crew, but that was what I got from the text of the movie. I haven't done too much research into the specifics of the crew uh, files, so I'm glad that you what? But they're the so long-lasting and very important for future. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, Ash continu- continues to monitor the crew as they approach the ship, their transmission getting more and more garbled, but him not really raising any like flags about that. He sort of makes like a very half-assed effort to be like, oh, you're kind of, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, fine. Inside, they, f- <laughs> they find a scene they struggle to understand with walls covered in something uh, it's all very like organically shaped in contrast to the very bulky and cubic ship that they came here on um kane climbs up a wall into a large open room with a huge mummified humanoid in some kind of control chair in the center investigating the fossilized alien they see its bones are turned outward as though it exploded from the inside Lambert takes a moment to ponder what happened to the rest of the crew and once again suggests that they leave. Um, but Kane calls her and Dallas over to show them something. But before we see what it is that he's showing them, we cut away to Ripley, who is Yay. deciphering the transmission. And this is where she brings up that it could be a warning. Ah, uh, yes, my bad. It's all, it all, it's all cross-cut pretty close. She wants to go after them. There's no point, yada, yada, yada. Uh, they'll fuck around and find out by the time you get there. <laughs> and they start. <laughs> we cut back to our crew of away team where they're descending into some sort of cave. Kane finds himself in another mysterious wide-open pit, this time a very hot and very damp wide-open pit. Describing what he sees, there's this pool full of leathery objects, almost oh, like eggs, which is a word he uses in the Yeah, in like some movie. sort of egg. I was like, well, how many leathery eggs have you dealt with? Like, genuinely. <laughs> I, I know dinosaur eggs are theorized to be leathery, but that is not the kind of thing you typically deal with on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's in space, but I assume... Dinosaurs are not necessarily pretty high on that list. Um, as he shines a light, he notes the layer of mist over the eggs, and when he puts his hand through it, it reacts with a high-pitched hum, uh, and he slips into the egg pit. Uh, investigating closer, he goes to touch a quote-unquote completely sealed egg, only to see some movement within when he shines his light through it. Uh, and as he's investigating, the egg busts open. Actually, that's incorrect. As the egg slowly opens, and it yes, reveals the egg this like slowly opens this pulsating mass in it, and he's like, "I'll put my face directly over this," and you'll never guess what happens <sighs> next. He gets face hugged by a face hugger. It's an but alien. We don't see I wonder why yet. the movie is titled how it is. <laughs> uh, what's important is that like we see, you know, it lunges out and all that, but it's cross cut so quickly, we don't actually see what happens to him because I think mm-hmm. sh- like this is when we cut back to the ship, right? Like almost immediately. Yeah, we don't we don't stay with him too long because we return to the ship pretty much immediately after he gets lunged at, uh, where Dallas is calling to be let in through the intercom, mm-hmm. um, and Ash Here sort of like runs is. down to meet them outside of the decontamination shower. Dallas is like something's attached itself to Kane. He wants to bring him into the infirmary, and Ripley strongly objects. She's like, "This isn't following the decontamination procedure." Yep. Uh, quote unquote, if we break quarantine, we could all die, which is <laughs> very different in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, this is the scene. This is the scene yes. that I realized like three hours after I was done with my movie night. Oh my God, that's a red herring. We're supposed to think that Ripley is the most antagonistic character in this movie right now. Mm-hmm. Because again, they planted that John Hurt is like the focus character. You know, he's the one who we get the most like cutbacks to when we're sort of, uh, he's the one who led the away team and volunteered for that. And we're getting his narration. He's also the actor that most of these people will recognize. Um and then, oh, you know, he, something terrible happens to him. He needs immediate medical attention. And this stick in the mm-hmm. mud is like, nah, the rule book says we have to leave him out there to die. And it's just like, I see. Like, you know, with, with our benefit of yeah. future knowledge, we're like, oh, yeah, I mean, Ripley's 100% right. And if everyone had listened to her, nothing would have, you know, 
Kane would have mm-hmm. been fucked, but everyone else would have been okay. But if you're watching this blind, Ripley is currently setting off all the red flags of, like, she's the problem character. She is probably going to be the one who, like, seals everybody else and, like, jets off and is like, ah, oh, sorry, quarantine, later, fuckos. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's one of those guys in every horror movie, like the, the guy in Train mm-hmm. to Busan who's like, we can't let in any survivors because I really need to stay alive. You know, that character. Yeah. That character is always an asshole. They're always, like, they go out right at the end of the movie or, or they, they just cause problems the whole time. And again, we don't know this lady. We we don't mm-hmm. we don't know that she's the hero, quote unquote. Um, so just this whole thing is playing with our expectations. But this is the moment where the movie is really driving home. I'd say for the first third of the movie, it's misleading us on what movie exactly it is, and everything changes in an upcoming scene. You know, the scene. Uh, yeah. But until that point, they are kind of pushing this this thing where Ripley is the closest thing to an antagonist we have. And John mm-hmm. Hurt's character, Kane, is probably our nominal protagonist, or at minimum, POV character. Yeah, and it's between it's him speaking. and Dallas, really, yeah, in terms him of, and like, Dallas. projected protagonists. Dallas kind of gives the sort of, like, you know, stern but fair boss figure vibe, and, like, it, it, it's like, yeah. you know, he's the Picard once... and Kane's the Riker kind of situation, like, you know. Yeah, I think what switches that for me is once Kane gets, um face hugged we spend a lot of time with dallas uh Mm -hmm. before the scene which we've alluded to and we'll talk about later yes soon i agree i think the movie yeah it's like it keeps you guessing by sort of switching between who's getting Mm -hmm. focused on but it's almost never ripley until yeah until it is (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) until they run out of other options basically yes Uh, Ripley continues to disobey Dallas's orders to open the hatch, but Ash, who has run down to it, opens it manually, and the quarantine is broken. Mm, Later on in the infirmary, (laughs) Ash and Dallas remove Kane's helmet to reveal the face hugger in all its glory. And the helmet is melted. Sorry. The face hugger got through the helmet, uh, so the helmet's been breached. Peel it off like an orange. Ash begins to try and cut the alien off of uh, Kane's face, but it's impossible without tearing said face off. Ugh. Parker suggests that they freeze him, which also kind of, like, made a lot of sense to me, but nobody listens to Parker, even though he will suggest this a couple times in the next, like, 30 minutes or so, and nobody, everyone just kind of ignores him. What's interesting Um, is, like, it's a good idea, but also that would have made them extra fucked later. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, the idea to free, I think they were just like, we don't know how the alien will respond to that, you know, maybe it'll just kill him Mm -hmm. outright. Uh, And every time they try and, like, get it off, it's got, like, its tail wrapped around Kane's throat. And every time they try and mess with it, it tightens its grip. So it's like, okay, okay. It's clear if we do anything to it, it'll just kill Kane outright. And we're still kind of hoping we can save him. So we got to find some other way to do it. They move Kane into, like, a full-body scanner, removing their masks, naughty naughty, Mm. and seeing that the face hugger is feeding him oxygen. He's got, like, a tube down his throat and keeping Kane in a coma for some reason. Dallas is like, look, we got to remove this. Even if it kills Kane, I'll, I'll give the order. I'll make the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ash and Dallas begin trying to cut the alien loose. But when they make an incision, it releases an acid from the cut. It's blood that eats right through the floor. And the rest of the crew have to run down several different floors to keep track of it as it eats through, trying to prevent it from eating through the hull of the ship. Not that Luckily, they would really be able to stop it. It's like, well, yeah. you're going to catch it in something. We, it just melted through solid metal, <laughs> like three layers of solid metal. 
Um, yeah, exactly. And they can't really do anything about it either. It, sto- it stops the deck short, so like, lucky, lucky for them. But mm. uh, had it made to the hole, that would have been very bad. A helpful pen inserted into the blood allows Dallas to declare that it is, in fact, acid. And uh, Kane is left to Ash's care as the rest of the crew begins repairs on the now-melted uh, part of the ship. Mm-hmm. Parker and Brett go about fixing the motor while bemoaning the fact that they landed on this planet at all, which is sort of their, like, go-to MO throughout the first part of this movie. Yep. And uh, back in the infirmary, Ash is monitoring Kane as Ripley comes to see what's up. And I love this conversation because the focus is entirely on Ash's reactions and performance Mm -hmm. in the scene because Ripley is only shown for the first, like... I would say two thirds of the conversation in an entirely black uh, silhouette in the foreground. Yep. Uh, she's also, barely even in the shot at all. Yeah, and as a side note on that, when she comes in, anyone who knows what a xenomorph looks like knows what Ash is looking at on that screen. So if you have secret <laughs> yes. knowledge of the future, you already know that this kind old man is definitely a problem. But he's got, he's got like, I, I don't know how he got it. It's like a shot of like the baby xenomorph. It's got these mm-hmm. giant bug eyes off to the side. And uh, when Ripley walks in, again, in silhouette, and this, she says, like, what is that? And Ash says, I don't know yet. And she goes to look. And he says, oh, I'd prefer it if you didn't. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, my God, red flag, red flag. <laughs> um, yeah. But if you don't know, I'm... you're just like, maybe it's some part of the facehugger's anatomy. Who knows? Uh, mm-hmm. But Ripley's basically, she's just showed up to give him a really hard time, which is still by uh, kind of, you know, playing into this this interpretation of her we've been encouraged to have so far which is that she's mm-hmm. the problem right now she's the stick in the mud who would see Kane dead rather than help him uh yeah yeah and she she's just here to be like hey ash uh breaking quarantine not cool bro you're supposed to listen to me when they're <laughs> off the ship i'm in charge and mm-hmm. ash is like oh yes it mm-hmm. slipped to my mind and i was like red flag but you know if you're if you're taking the scene at face value you're like man she's really being mean to this nice old science officer man who's not at all super nefarious um yeah well it's interesting um because obviously the first time you watch it it's hard to know who's who but this mm-hmm. is the scene for me where it's kind of switches from ash just sort of being like very laissez-faire to being like oh he's definitely malicious in some form because his mm. performance is very cagey yes. and everything he's saying um, you know could just be a, a guy who maybe doesn't necessarily want to um, think about the consequences of his actions as every uh, antagonist and or protagonist in a Michael Crichton novel might do but hmm. his, the way that his uh, expressions change throughout the scene and the way that his body language is you get yeah. the idea that he's not he's hiding something he's not necessarily um He's, he's intentionally hiding something as opposed to just ignoring the possible consequences for his action. It's sort of the first right. time when his performance conveys that. Uh, and, the, and the framing of the shot does a lot to establish that. Because, again, we never stop looking at Ash, even though uh, yeah. Ripley is there <laughs> It's like the first him scene. to high hell. It's the first scene that nominally puts us in Ripley's perspective, although mm-hmm. still we're, there's still that element of distance. Uh, essentially, what this movie does is it never lies to you. It never makes the characters yeah. act out of character to encourage a specific interpretation. Ripley's always acting very consistently. It's just the assumptions the movie plants in your head make you think John hurts the hero. Why is she being mean to him? Stuff like that. Uh, right. And in this case with Ash, the only explanation that would work for Ash willingly breaking quarantine is that Ash was just so caught up in the emotional moment and he really wanted to save Kane, so he let them in. That's the impression we get from Dallas and Lambert, who were both yelling at Ripley to break protocol and let them in. But Ash has been a very chill, not very concerned guy so far. Mm -hmm. And we don't really get the impression that he is the kind of person who would breach protocol because he just loves his crewmates so much. 
Right. So it's already it already feels a little weird. It's not quite adding up for the characterization that would fit in this space. And Ripley is also like, you know, she's a stick in the mud, but she's not changing her characterization in any way. She's staying consistent. Mm-hmm. She's like, we have protocols for a reason. If something's wrong with him, it can quickly become wrong with all of us. And then we're all in trouble, which is why right. quarantine protocols exist, guys. And it's like, oh, yes, you know, <laughs> you're right. But yeah, whatever. Um, it also doesn't help that Ash spends like most of this conversation being like, ah, oh, the creature. So fascinatingly elegant and it's like stop that (laughs) it's attached to his face man stop admiring it yeah Um, yeah Uh, but they they have this very uncomfortable conversation in part uneasy with each other uh later on we do another one of our little time cuts uh ash calls dallas to come have a look at kane as something interesting has happened I swear to God, um, Ash pulls this stunt four separate times. He's like, come and see this. No, I won't tell you. It's better if you see for yourself. Nobody should yes. trust this man. No one. Not a, he, n- never before in a horror movie have so many obviously a villain red flags been thrown and the rest of the crew not done a single thing about it. But that um, said, the crew is mostly quite smart and very yeah. good at picking up. On, like the whole time they're, they're traipsing into the alien spaceship, like Lambert's freaking out. And even the others are uneasy. Like they don't like that they're here. They're not. They're not just being, you know, oh, let's just wander into the scary, it'll mm-hmm. be fine, everything's chill, let me put my unprotected face in it and lick it or something. Like, they're Except acting... maybe Kane. <laughs> maybe Kane. But even maybe then, Kane, Kane. <laughs> Kane was wearing a spacesuit, a big, bulky, armored one. He had no reason to believe that anything in there would be able to just melt through it and hurt him. Like, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it was bad, but, like, everyone in this movie acts in a way that makes sense for who they are as people. And also, yeah. this is this is a rare horror movie that presents within itself the way that all of this could have been avoided. Several ways mm-hmm. this all could have been avoided, but the specific way with Ripley being like, no, I'm not letting you in. We have quarantine protocols for a reason. If they had just listened to her, only Kane would have been fucked. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, <laughs> what what's interesting about that is that with a lot of horror movies, it's more played up as like, you know, they try stuff and it just doesn't work because the horror movie has to happen or, you know, the, mm-hmm. the killer is, you know, persistent beyond all reason or, you know, just doesn't even really work on a consistent rule set. But this plays the horror more closely to how you would play a tragedy where the tragedy mm. is inevitable because of who the characters are. Like if you had a different set of characters, it wouldn't have played out that way. But because of the mm-hmm. situation and the way it worked, even though they're trying their best to not have anything bad happen, the way it's arranged means they're pretty fucked. Which, again, makes the sequel Aliens interesting because it's sort of like, okay, so what if we had a completely different set of characters playing it out? Would we be able to solve the problem? The answer is no. Anyway. um, (laughs) uh, But yes, sorry. Yes, Ash, suspicious. Ash suspiciously calls Ripley and Kane down to the infirmary when they arrive. Kane is already in the infirmary. Uh, Yes, sorry. Dallas. Uh, Error in my notes. Uh, The face hugger is suspiciously missing. It is Mm -hmm. no longer on Kane's face. That's ominous. Yep. Uh, they cautiously enter in another one of these really great um, static shots where the camera might move slightly, but we don't cut away. And we get to see a lot of the background of the shot, which is very spooky in a horror movie where you're not oh, sure where God, something it's is. It's terrifying. They do these frequently and always to great effect in this movie. It's yeah. The editing and shot selection is so it's scary. <laughs> and a lot of the time, they'll they'll do that thing where like they sort of frame a character slightly off center, so yes. there's space in the shot behind the them. The X Files go to <laughs> yeah, and about a third of the time there is actually something behind them. But the rest of the two thirds, you're just sitting there like gripping the armrests on the chair, like where is it? Which is exactly the right mood because yes. if the if the monster were predictable, 
it wouldn't be as scary if it were showing up mm-hmm. in any sh- it's like you know it's someone in a horror movie you know they're they look they're washing their hands and then they open the medicine cabinet and then when they close it there's something behind them in the mirror like you know that happens every time it's not scary anymore but if it only happens right. like a third of the time every time they reach no, for that medicine scary. cabinet you're like is it going to be this time <laughs> <laughs> yeah Yes. Yep. Uh, and as they're searching around, a loud, a loud crash as Dallas knocks something over, sort of breaks the silence and breaks the shot. And uh, as an afterthought, I noted this when I was watching it, Ash closes the door behind them uh. like a full couple minutes after they've already started looking. And I'm like, oh, Ash. God. <laughs> so much plausible uh, deniability. But if you're looking for it, you're like, I don't trust this motherfucker in age. <laughs> Man, sus. Uh, looking into all sorts of dark <laughs> oh, corners. No! <laughs> Damn it. I, I, you know, I always thought we had to get there eventually. Thing, but it, no, it really well, does work yes. in both Alien and Aliens. <laughs> alien, Aliens, and the Thing all kind of play with very simple, similar uh, sources of horror in the like, who can you trust direction and yeah. the where is the danger direction. I mean, hell, um, the Thing and Alien have a very similarly structured opener, which yeah. I, uh, I noted in my extensive live tweeting of the process, uh, where <laughs> you know it's like we, we go to the place that got torn up by the the scary monster of the week and we observe the anthropological remnants of how it tore stuff up and then when we Mm -hmm. go back it snuck away in our back pocket and now we have a problem uh right both two very similarly structured bits of horror because it's so effective it's a great trope yeah there's a reason these movies are still scary and it's not just that they're well constructed it's it's a very scary situation it's it's something that i don't think anyone would really know what to do about yeah you know how some, some horror is so outlandish um, this is sort of the like nightmare on Elm Street situation. I'm like this is never gonna happen. I'm not. Scared. <laughs> it, it's scary in like a fun slasher horror movie kind of way. But like I no, there's no man in a striped sweater who's going to invade my dreams and like stab me or something. Okay, that's not right. happening. Yeah. And, but a shape shifting alien monster, on the other hand. <laughs> well, no. It realistically, in real life, I'm never gonna encounter a shape shifting alien monster. But the way it's presented is so um, realistic. The way that its situation is handled and mm-hmm. the uh, way that the monster acts it doesn't feel fictional even though it very much is and i think um, one one advantage that alien has a little bit over the thing in this specific remin- uh, regard is that uh and the reason why this is is that they're aiming for two different things in alien all the characters feel like very real people who know mm-hmm. each other and have worked together before and are sort of like at peace with each other's eccentricities for the most part um and in the thing they deliberately drop a large cast of almost interchangeable characters on you like each character has maybe one gimmick tops and we know who the main Mm -hmm. character is but like and this is helpful because at this point if you can't tell all of them by face and you don't even know half their names you can't tell when someone's acting weird or like disappeared somewhere or or is like running off in a weird way uh so, so the thing, it is to their benefit to not give us any information about who the cast is other than a quick intro shot of like, oh, God, that's a lot of people. Uh, right. And, of course, the book it's based on has a much bigger cast. It's like a much larger group of people in the base, even more hard to tell apart. Whereas with mm. Alien, the movie only works because everyone is making decisions that we understand because we understand them as characters. Right. Uh, speaking of making decisions, Ripley looks into a dark corner, which is never a good idea, and has the uh, alien dropped on her, and she kind of scrambles and throws it off. Oh, uh, God, it's terrifying. It drops into the frame tail first. It just, like, swings into the shot, and I was like, oh, Jesus! <laughs> it, oh, it's terrifying. And then the rest of it flops on her, and it's just like, yeah. holy shit. It's this almost thing is spooky. It, it's spooky, and it's eerie because the shot is, like, partially lit, so, like, it's not really mm-hmm. dark and shadowy. 
like Ripley's in the light, but the area behind her is in shadow. So when the facehugger's tail swings into frame, it's lit. We can just see it. And it's just like, somehow that's so much more unnerving than if it were like a shadowy figure creeping around. Yeah, this movie, uh, to not to stop, continue again, but to harp on the cinematography here, the use of light and shadow is incredibly effective. Uh, I, uh, the tendency with a lot of like modern grimdark or just quote-unquote dark movies mm-hmm. is to just gray everything out and uh, make everything so dark that you can't see what's happening. And this movie will not deny you the horror of seeing what is happening. It's just also going to have parts of the screen be fully black. So it's a high kind of contrast situation as opposed to sort of like washing everything in darkness. And that makes it even scarier because there are places where you fully can see everything and are desperately searching for the alien. And then the points of darkness where there's no chance of you seeing what's coming from there. And the characters are, this is very diegetic lighting. The characters also don't know what's coming from there. The characters are also desperately searching for what they can see. Exactly. very spooky. It's Um, like, I mean, a lot of this movie is clearly drawing on, you know, 2001, which was, mm -hmm. it, it came out 10 years prior and it kind of started the entire genre of, cinema horror in space like yeah and, and it did more fucky stuff with gravity than happens in alien i don't think they ever mess with the gravity in alien which is fine but like 2001's aesthetic is so bright and stark that the horror is mm-hmm. terrifying because it's just omnipresent and very well lit like you you never wonder <laughs> where's hal hal's everywhere baby uh but with this they really get the benefit of light and shadow because mm-hmm. you know the the xenomorph blends in very well in the dark but well spoiler alert um <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet but you know what i We're mean <laughs> yeah soon soon. Uh, soon i gotta okay yes, we- sorry watching this movie for the first time knowing what was coming like the minute certain scenes started my heart rate just went through the roof yeah. i was just sitting there like <laughs> oh god oh god you know hitchcockian suspense bomb under the mm-hmm. table bomb sitting at Dramatic the table irony if you will you know yeah, yeah. exactly just, ugh. Ugh. Um, there's a reason ripley... i don't like horror i don't like feeling like that <laughs> <laughs> i do i horror is not my favorite genre by any means but i do enjoy it and this is probably one of my favorite horror movies it's similar mm. similar to the thing similar to you know other aforementioned uh kind of like sci-fi horror i like it when the Suspense comes from the structure of the story more so than like, look at this guy with all these knives in his face. Spooky. <laughs> this is not Isn't shade on the slasher genre. Knives <laughs> don't go in faces. Xenobites <laughs> who? Um, uh, anyway, Ripley throws the uh, face hugger off of her face and it kind of like twitches a little bit but settles down. And as Ash pokes at it, he's like, it's not alive. <laughs> Ominous. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm very not suspicious. Let me just take this with me. Ooh, Ooh it's totally fine. Ooh. It's so Ripley's gross like... and organic. I feel like they built, it, they oh. made it out of like raw chicken or something. It, it's just, it's really nasty looking. This is uh, we're going on a tangent again, but this is important. Hmm? Uh, the aesthetic of classic uh, pre the dawn of CGI horror is so gooey and damp oh, and it so is so gooey. much scarier than a cgi monster could ever hope to be yeah like, something about just the wettest monster i have ever seen in my life like <laughs> running through the background of a frame is so viscerally like disturbing and terrifying and like the idea of just the goop the feeling of yep. goop i'm like hate everything about this is horrifying it's i hate creepy this and wet <laughs> it's so creepy it's so spooky yeah. it's a sign of like something has been here and it's very tangible and like yeah i 
It's just so nasty. It's terrifying. It's so and I nasty. Think, like, it's terrifying. And it, it's for, just an element of like realism that is. Ugh. Yeah. The, the goop really makes it feel so much more present in the scene. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense. You can make a CGI monster as goopy as you want, but then you have to animate all the places that goop interacts with the real world, which is a huge pain yeah. in the butt. But you can just, you know, slather <laughs> your latex suited actor in KY jelly and call it a day. And suddenly you've got the creepiest <laughs> thing on the planet. But that said, I think the face hugger is the part of the movie that squicks me out the most because it's like mm-hmm. it. it it feels like the outside is some kind of like very well crafted like latex or polymer shell but the inside mm-hmm. the part where it attaches to the face that if That's it's cool. not made of like real organic parts <laughs> then it's an incredibly <laughs> good facsimile and it was just so gross there's a bit where like ash is poking at it with like doctor's tools and i was like stop mm-hmm. stop oh my god <laughs> it's just yeah like I, it's not body horror because it's not mm-hmm. a person it's just icky (laughs) and i don't like it which is good the whole point of this movie is that the aliens are icky and i i respect that yes we appreciate the ickiness even if it icks us out um ripley is like we should put that thing back where it came from or so help me and dallas is like (laughs) sorry it's up to ash he's the science officer which is a terrible decision (laughs) yeah dallas is like i trust him implicitly he keeps telling me to come into rooms and look at things without telling me what i'm looking at (laughs) Uh, and dallas walks out ripley kind of follows close behind she's like i don't trust ash do you because you shouldn't um the repairs are like barely finished uh but dallas is like we're not talking about this right now um and there's a take off let's just get out of here uh ripley brings up that she's never served with ash before uh and Mm -hmm. uh he was like assigned to the crew last minute and she's a little like what's up with that and dallas is like i don't know but you know whatever we got bigger things to worry about it's like uh you do not my guy (laughs) you You have the same thing to worry about (laughs) but again you know this is a case where it's like token sensible person ripley is being like look everything about this smells really bad and it's it's very worrying and i don't like that ash doesn't seem to be on our side with this and dallas is like i cannot have crew infighting right now we've got enough problems and it's like uh yeah uh, well <laughs> that's assuming ripley's the problem here really yeah yeah um they take off from the planet it's a bit of rocky but parker and brett did their job well they make it back to the nostrama no problem the crew sans kane and ash are just kind of sitting around chatting they look through the system they've got about 10 months until they go back to earth so they're going to, have to go back into cryo sleep again and as they're sort of like bemoaning this Ash calls them down to see Kane uh, once again pulling. Once the, again, come and see. I better, won't tell you what. It's easier to just show you. And uh, like when you they get down just there, said he's awake. <laughs> come on, fucker. That's two words. <laughs> yes, Kane is up and at him, alive and fine, in a very, very weirdly shaped <laughs> medical gown. It like looks like a corset. <laughs> you, you don't like his uh, his his delicately unlaced deep V neck corset thingy. <laughs> I just I don't understand how that's medically any better than like the <laughs> regular I don't hospital think that... gown. I didn't think that was medical. I figured that was just what he was wearing underneath the spacesuit, which I wouldn't that say is better. Even more questions. <laughs> hey, space so underwear. It, 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 they go back full Victorian, you know? It's like a full little bodysuit under there. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And it was it's the cute one because they're like. production design that I was like, that's so weird. Why did they make that choice? Everything else about everything else in this movie <clears> looks like it makes sense, but this is throwing me off. They were like, this is our last chance to get that good John Hurt fan service in for the <laughs> for the viewers <laughs> in the audience. I don't know, man. Oh. But it's cute because they're like, Kane, how are you feeling? And he just kind of weakly says, peachy. And it's like, haha, he's got a sense of humor. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. God. Uh, Here it comes. This is where my heart rate was like, (laughs) if I had an Apple Watch, it would have been like, are you in medical distress? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Kane doesn't remember anything about the planet. The last thing he sort of can recollect is a smothering feeling. And they have one... um, (laughs) They all settle down to have one last meal before going back to go to the pods to sleep. They're all mm-hmm. sitting around just like earlier in the movie, joking laughing over and uh, dinner, laughing, talking about the how the food's box bad. Out. Uh, and as Kane is shoving, I guess, pasta or something in his mouth, he yep. starts sputtering and choking. Uh, Ash very belatedly says, "This is serious." As Kane is dying, <laughs> good job, um, Ash. Is that your medical <laughs> opinion? <laughs> The rest of the gang kind of like holds Kane down on the table. This they feels think he's on having for a, very a seizure. Long time. Uh, they're, yeah. they're doing like the. Uh, at the time, there was this idea that if someone has a seizure, you should like put something in their mouth so they don't like bite their tongue. But in actuality, you can do more damage trying to force someone's jaw mm-hmm. or like get bit. So you're just supposed to kind of like let the seizure pass and then help them afterwards. But at the time, they're working on seizure protocols. So they just assume he's having a convulsion of some kind. Uh, but that's not what's happening. <laughs> No, because an alien will burst out of his ribcage, a la that uh, alien fossil we saw earlier. Uh, and Parker goes to stab it, but Ash kind of like stops him in the moment by throwing a hand out very like yeah. haphazardly. This whole shot sequence is shot very jumbled and quick and frantic as the sequence would feel. And so yep. it's kind of like that, that motion by Ash can get a little lost. Um, the alien scampers on off. Yeah. And this Ominous. scene is where the entire movie completely changes. Yes. Because this is where... All of those little misdirects from the first third of the movie are suddenly like, oh, well, I I guess he's not the main character. <laughs> he's fully yeah. dead. And also, like, you know, a crew member just died. This is serious. This doesn't happen, you know, every day. They're mm-hmm. all very shaken up and freaked out. And, like, he, it's not quick, you know? Like, uh, as mentioned, yeah. the scene goes on for a while. But not just that. Like, the first, like, blood spurt and, like, something's wrong happens some seconds before the actual chestburster pops out. Uh, mm-hmm. In probably the most iconic scene in the movie, certainly the one that spawned oh, yeah. the most imitators and references, uh, including what what later like funny space movie also has John Hurt where the exact same thing happens and he goes, oh no, not again. Uh, uh, is it Spaceballs? No, it might be Spaceballs. Spaceballs is a Star Wars parody, so I always am like, oh yeah, that's yeah, up, but, but then it, space it balls throws is in like a lot a general, of other... It's a yeah. general <laughs> space parody, so I, I would be shocked it. if they didn't throw in a around. Anyway, who knows? I haven't seen the movie regardless. <laughs> but, like, this is the scene that's just burned itself into everyone's head because it is so much of a holy shit moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. getting us invested in John Hurt from minute one was all leading up to this gut punch. And suddenly, the game has changed. The movie doesn't yeah. know what movie it is anymore. Who's the main character? Who's okay? Who's going to survive? Who's not? What's happening? Who's the antagonist? All of that, all those expectations they've been setting up are suddenly just you know whipped out from under us and now they've also got a little baby alien loose on the ship and they're like well Mm -hmm. fuck (laughs) i guess we gotta deal with that (laughs) yeah the crew goes looking for their mystery guest with little luck and gather uh, around a view screen kind of reconvening as they send kane's body off into the stars uh wrapped at high speed bag at high speed i feel bad (laughs) because i almost laughed at that scene it's like such a somber moment where Dallas mm-hmm. is like, does anyone want to say any words? And I joked that like Ripley would be like, oh, and I told you so seems gauche at a funeral. But like nobody says anything because clearly nobody mm-hmm. knows how to handle this. And then they just yeet him into space at like Mach <laughs> 2. And I was like, oh, my God, really? You can't even give him like yeah. a little like a little drift, you know? Nope. Nope. No. He's gone. He's though. gone, baby. Uh, and they continue on off into the stars. Brett uh, shows them all an electronic prod that he's developed that should hurt the creature without breaking its skin because a reminder that its blood is acidic and could go through the hull of the ship so they can't like cut it or anything 
Yep. Also, um, Ash uh, really wants them to take it alive. Uh, he's like yes. not letting them even consider killing it. He's like, use this net, use these prods, don't kill it for scientific reason purposes. It's like, yes. nobody should be listening to this man anymore. No. Not, the minute he said, don't kill it for scientific reasons, it should have been... Uh, yeah. Sorry, Ash, you've been overruled. Um, yeah. In order to find the alien, he's also developed this tracking device that keys off of micro changes in air density, aka. Yeah, movement. that didn't make any sense. <laughs> like, I know it's a little bit of like hand wavium for like techno babble, but I was like, this is not going to pick up the people moving. It's not going to pick up the fact that you're in a ship with air circulating. What are you talking about? But yeah, basically, we'll see it's... that played up to a, a certain effect yeah. in the next scene anyway. Again, this is something that I, I like how they handle it in Aliens instead. Uh, so mm. well, once once we get through this movie, <laughs> I'll be discussing some of that. But uh, yes. yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a thing you point it in a direction and it tells you if there's something alive there that shouldn't be there. Sort of. If you just heard a very ominous creak, that was my cat pushing oh, over. Oh, God. <laughs> Jonesy, damn it. We're not at Jonesy. that scene yet. So they split up into two teams to go search out for the uh, mysterious alien friend, Ash, Lambert, and Dallas, and then Ripley, Parker, and Brett, who kind of form like the protagonist trio that I really enjoy the vibe of. Their mission, catch it, put it in the airlock, and get it off the damn ship. Yep. Uh, the gang hunt goes hunting. Team Ripley finds uh, damage to a module that the boys fixed already, and stopping to check it and get the lights back on, we get um, Ripley start to f- get a little ping off of the tracking device. Hmm. The creature is within five meters. In fact, Ugh. it's in a locker in the storage room that they've just entered. Um, and the, I, get, I'm, I want to make it very clear that I'm breezing through plot in this podcast for the sake <laughs> of brevity, but these shots and these scenes take a very long time. Everything in this movie is very slow, and that yep. is very effective at making me feel like I am very stressed about the situation <laughs> and very afraid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, um, I actually, uh, the version I was watching this had uh, subtitles, but they were a little bit offset, so I got a little mm. bit spoiled for this scene, just because oh, no. <laughs> it gave me subtitles from like three minutes later where someone was saying, here, kitty, kitty, and I was like, well, fuck, okay. Uh, so, yes, so this one scene. Alert, as, they, yeah. <laughs> as they gather around the locker and prepare to catch the fucker, quote unquote, uh, they open it up, but inside is no alien, just Jonesy the cat. <laughs> ah! Who immediately bolts, and uh, yes, they don't catch it, and then they're like, do. wait, we have to catch it, otherwise it'll just keep setting off the tracker which I thought mm-hmm. was actually a song because I didn't think of that in the moment either uh, yeah. but then it's like and oh that was, shit that was a Wait. Ripley original she yep. was like you know That's this my girl. Is, uh, we should solve this problem um, and they send Brett off to go catch the cat so it doesn't show up on the tracker again which um, is a rookie horror movie mistake like they've yeah. been really good about not letting people go off alone it's like we're gonna split into two teams we're gonna we're gonna be methodical about this we're gonna be careful and then it's like oh Brett you idiot go look around <laughs> in this giant a decrepit, empty, silent facility by yourself looking for the cat. What go could possibly on, Brett, go wrong? You most disposable of remaining crew members. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ugh. And it's it's interesting, though, at this point, because, you know, while the movie has, you know, broken all its own rules and now we're in uncharted territory, it is still a horror movie. And there is still mm-hmm. only one black guy in the cast. And I think almost all of the audience is like, all right, how long does Parker have? Like five minutes, ten tops. And uh, not to spoil, but the movie does keep kind of subverting your expectations on that for a for a hot minute and yeah. uh brett uh poor brett um Ugh, ripped i mean brett. he was we knew he was fucked the minute they were like go get it we're not coming with you we'll just stay over here <laughs> um yep. but uh this does include a very important reveal because of course when last we saw the alien it was this weird little worm thingy you know mm-hmm, gross mm-hmm. and ugly uh but you know small uh, yeah, uh, as Brett will start calling out to Jonesy the cat, kind of meowing at him, and you know, 
here, kitty, kitty. Um, he follows the kind of faint sounds of the cat to like an engine that it's hiding in. And as he tries to lure him out, he finds a piece of shed skin, very similar in shape to the form of the alien previously. And as he continues and shout on- out to the actor, because this guy does not have that much dialogue. Um, at least not at this point in the movie. But like, mm-hmm. as he sort of picks it up, he really, with no dialogue, gets across this sort of like incomprehension, followed by a sort of dawning realization, and then he like drops it very hurriedly and sort of looks around with this slow, growing dread. Because mm-hmm. initially, it's like, what the fuck is that? And then he puts it together shortly after the audience probably has of like, oh, it shed its skin, so it got bigger. <laughs> and it's just no dialogue, no other character to verbalize that. Just this one guy acting with his eyes. Very impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and as he, he finds the cat from behind him, the now much, much larger alien, probably in the form that most of the audience would recognize. This is the mm-hmm. iconic, like, dome-headed, you know, very... Uh, uh, it, it's kind of tall and skeletal uh and very yeah. like like black uh which is an interesting note because uh ash in his conversation with ripley had mentioned that it looked like it was like integrating silicates into its body like absorbing mm. them from the environment so i guess it's sort of implied that the xenomorph is camouflaging to fit its environment uh yeah. so it's it's purposefully kind of blending in with the background which is an acute little peek because like when the when the chest burster came out it was like this kind of tan flesh color and now it's just Mm -hmm. this like sleek black so it's changed a lot but it's like it's unmistakably the same critter because what else could it be (laughs) yeah and it drops down behind brett as the cat continues to snarl at it uh (laughs) and uh unfortunately this is the end of our boy brett uh at least in the uh, non-deluxe edition but yes Uh, yes and this edition. is kind of the, a good point to, to bring it up because the the <laughs> marking more body horror. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh boy, the <laughs> murking of said Brett by said alien is pretty brief. It's very similarly cut to how the face hugger first attached itself to Kane. Um, we don't actually see other than the uh, kind of iconic chest bursting scene all that much gore in this movie a lot of yeah. it is obscured through the cuts or they cut away from it and i think part of that is to help with the special effects of it all because whenever you see the alien too directly you get the jaws problem um yep. but a lot of it is just to kind of leave it up to your imagination because whatever you are imagining this alien does to someone is probably 10 times more horrifying than an actual shot of the alien doing it would agree you know, and we, in fact we just uh... need to see it attack we don't need to see the specifics of that to get the idea of horror yeah, and you're right. The uh, the chestburster scene is, I think, the only instance of gore in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. There is a director's cut uh, that includes some information that I think it was right that it was cut uh, because they put it in like the the end of the movie where there's a rather tense countdown, and then they just kind of kill mm. the pacing to to cut away to this thing that explains, in among other things, what exactly happened to Brett. But like, it's. It's scarier if, you know, we just never see him again. You know, the, the unknown yeah. is always scarier than the known. And, like, I, I, the, the xenomorph looks very creepy in this scene. But as we see mm-hmm. more of it, especially if you have the opportunity to, like, pause or, like, go back and kind of see it again, the, the, the cracks show a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, this is, again, this is something I think they perfected in time for aliens. But, you know, the, the scary impact of alien is contingent on the creature looking and moving in a very unsettling way. And they Mm -hmm. do their best, and they do a quite good job. But for the most part, the heavy lifting is being done by the fact that we only see it in short bursts, largely obscured, camouflaged with the background, 
what's scary is that we can't see it. Once we can see it, it's like, all right, that was a pretty good looking <laughs> scary monster suit covered yep. in KY jelly. Uh, dome. But, you know. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Spooky, spooky. Um, yeah, no, the the yep. horror of the unknown is really played to great effect here. And, you know, the, the crew of the ship would also not have a great idea of what this alien looks like, because if you're seeing it, you do not want to be seeing that. Exactly. <laughs> Basically, at this point, it's clear that if you're in the same room as the xenomorph for more than a few seconds, you're just going to be dead. Like, yeah, it, it's it's like a it's like a blender. Uh, mm-hmm. So just don't get near it, basically, which means they can't see it because the ship is all these like blind corners and little tunnels. And so you mm-hmm. can't see anything from a distance, really. So so there's never an opportunity to get an establishing shot on the thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we'll play this up to effect as later Parker and Ripley will bring the rest of the crew up to speed. The alien had apparently pulled Brett up into the ducks, which blind corners and spooky areas that you can't quite see and you can't quite track the ducks of the ship where the air travels through and all that. Pretty good spot. Yeah. Um, which Dallas does imply that like, they were around to see it happen, which I guess makes more sense yeah. than just sending him off alone. But like that whole scene, Brett is completely isolated. He's in parts of the ship we haven't really seen before. It doesn't feel like they're in the same area, but, you know, they clearly saw it happen because they're explaining it, so. Mm-hmm. I'm choosing to believe that it was maybe just, like, they put the clues together for seeing the scene of the crime moments later kind of situation. Like, maybe there was, like, an open vent door and, like, a yeah. shoe left on the ground or something. More <laughs> Or so they than heard him scream and they ran in just in time to see him disappear yeah. up into it. You know, all kinds of possibilities. But it, it's pretty much the only slightly jarring continuity jump between cuts, like... Mm-hmm. You know, if if they'd never seen him disappear, or like if we'd just seen a shot of them reacting to hearing him screaming or something like that, it would have tied it together. But it's not it's not a yeah. deal breaker. If anything, no, it just yeah. increases the disorientation and fear the audience is feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dallas is like, okay, okay, ducks, we can use this to corral him into the airlock, and he's sort of describing a plan as... And as he's describing it, Ash jumps to attention, looking sketchier than ever in the background of the shot. And I'm like, this God. man looks so soft. <laughs> if I, like, look, mm-hmm. I know he's, you know, pretending to be a member of the crew and their friend and everything, but he is the newest member of the crew by a significant margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been nothing but suspicious this whole time. And if I saw a man looking as skittish as that <laughs> during our planning <laughs> meeting and still trying to say, don't kill the alien, I would have a lot of questions for that man. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the problem is, like, they've got bigger things to worry about than yeah. be like, Ash, why are you so invested in getting this murderous <laughs> alien killing machine back to Earth? Why, perhaps? Uh, they've got other shit uh, to worry about. Uh, yes. Namely, said murderous alien killing machine. Yes, um, which Ash suggests they could use heat to corral, uh, since, you know, what are animals afraid of? Fire, yada, yada, yada. Yep, yep. Giving it as some sort of weakness for this movie is very important so that they have some sort of thing to make them feel safer in scenes yeah and um, otherwise it doesn't give us anything to root for you know they need yes. to stand some sort of chance mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. ripley volunteers to be the one to go into the ducks to kind of herd the creature but dallas is like oh, no you and ash hero. take <laughs> no you and hesitation ash take the airlock yeah not yeah. even a little bit uh lambert, lambert is like which lucky uh, one of us one gets of, to go like... into deck yeah and <laughs> yeah. then ripley immediately says i'll do it and dallas is like no no no, i'll do it and it's like oh my goodness and like if you had mm-hmm. any concerns that ripley was like not a team player and just a very stuffy by the book type they're completely gone at this point it's like yeah. all right ripley is the one character who is not even panicking like ash isn't panicking mm-hmm. for his own suspicious reasons ripley is the one who's clearly shaken but is holding it together and that's an important distinction. And and we'll see a little more mm-hmm. of Ripley's emotional side as the movie continues. 
But they're basically making it clear that, like, while she, her character is completely consistent through throughout the movie. Initially, we might have assumed she was this character archetype, but it's actually becoming clear that she's this character archetype, which is yes. cool. It's good writing. Yeah. Um, Ripley and Ash are going to take the airlock. Parker and Lambert are going to rig the heaters. And Dallas is going to go into the vents. We have our first plan forming. Uh, Dallas returns to the mother computer room, one of the only well-lit places on the ship, and requests sort of like an evaluation of their strategy against the alien, but mother doesn't have enough data to compute. And he sort of prompts a few more variants of this question until he finally asks, what are his chances? But he always gets the same answer, does not compute, ominous, who knows what will happen. Not the ship. I mean, we can guess, but... (laughs) Mother the hasn't watched all... enough horror movies. No, Mother needs to, to go through a little bit of a, a binge there. Hit up the Netflix horror section, watch everything that's on there, just get Maybe an idea, Mother's fill like, up the databases. Mother's like, I don't know, you're the, the last uh, young, attractive white man in the cast. I wasn't expecting you to die, but <laughs> you're about to go into an enclosed space with the, you know, the bastard offspring of a blender and a velociraptor, so I'm just a little torn on which way this is going to go. <laughs> blender and a velociraptor, oh my yeah. god. Uh, All the teams in position, everyone jumps on the comms to talk through the plan. Dallas is moving through the vents, flamethrower in hand, reaching junction after junction and having Ripley close all the hatches behind him as he goes, effectively cutting off his means of escape, but also preventing the alien from sneaking up behind him. Uh, Lambert is sort of watching him on some sort of scanner or tracker. Uh, Little just bleeping dot marking Dallas and a little bleeping dot marking the creature as uh, he approaches the third junction and those two dots are both bleeping at her. Uh, she cautions Dallas that the creature is right nearby, and as he reaches that third junction, he begins his descent, not seeing it anywhere around him. He yeah, continues this scene on... confused me a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious to see exactly how it played out. Because uh, yeah. there was sort of the question of, like, where is he in relation to the alien? Like, that's the scary part of this scene. Um and there really are only a few places where the alien could be. Mm-hmm. So it's weird that A, he doesn't see it. B, it's not entirely clear where it is. Uh, but yeah, sorry, please continue. Um. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, that's a good thing to note. Um, as he kind of goes down and descends into this junction, Lambert loses the signal of the alien and Dallas is looking around, but he, he's just not seeing it anywhere. He's like, it's not here. Uh, and Lambert getting more and more frantic starts, yep. uh, you know, yelling at him like, it's, I don't know where it is. I lost it. It's there. You got to get out of there. Um, and eventually she starts getting the signal again, coming right for him. Uh, and as Dallas turns around, jump scare, creature with outstretched hands, static, and rip Dallas. Yeah, so that part, like, that that part confused me a little bit, because it's like, okay, wait, where was it? Because, mm-hmm. you know, that that's obviously the mystery setup. It's like, okay, he's moving towards it, and then they can't find it. And I guess, you know, they can't find the alien if it's not moving. Like, that's pretty consistently established. Um Right. So I guess the gist is that it sort of stayed very still, but, like, did he pass it on the way in? He kind of has to have. Uh, and then he goes out so quickly that it's like, wait, where was he? Where was that? What what just happened? Uh, and right. honestly, that's fine. Like, it's still very scary. And it's like, I mean, he was fucked the minute he went into that ductwork. None of us had any illusions about him actually surviving that encounter. <laughs> um, but it, it was, for the most part, the movie has been so good about being like, where was it? How did it get there? How did it sneak up on them? This specific mm-hmm. one, it's just, I think it's like, well, Dallas was in a uh, place with very poor lighting. Uh, and he just didn't see it, and then it killed him. And it's like, well, that seems like the kind of thing they maybe could have seen coming, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. 
I it's had the one this... that requires the most external justification to kind of like <clears throat> rectify in your mind, and it moves pretty yeah. quickly past it into like here's the next plan, so you don't get right. to dwell on it too long in the movie. But talking about it now, we obviously have a lot of time to dwell on it. So yeah, <laughs> I I do think uh, while he's in the ductwork, they do a couple more of those shots where like there's more space in the frame than feels comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's like what what's behind him because for a bit he's like crouching in front of this pe- this tangle of ductwork that I could have sworn was the xenomorph standing very still. But like, just cause it, you know, it was very shadowy. It had those corrugated pipes all over it. it right. You know, it could have been anything. I thought it was, but then it wasn't because he turned around and it like, it, it arms outstretched, jump scares him. By the way, that shot does not really work very well if you pause no. it. Cause you're like, no, those are very not. human arms. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is uh, very important that that shot only is on screen for like a split second. Because if you look yeah. at it for more than that, you were like, oh man in a suit. <laughs> He's very goofy. Um, yeah, so it's just He's doing jazz hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just a little bit. It's it's a little bit weird. Um, it's a very effective tension builder, but it's it's probably mm-hmm. the only kill in the movie where the more you think about it afterwards, the more you're like, that didn't really feel fair. That did that. They didn't give us all the parameters, you know? We, we can't yeah. quite 100% understand how that happened, which admittedly might be a feature and not a bug. Like the the mm-hmm. fact that not every one of these is like a completely fair like maybe it just tucked itself up against the wall real quiet and then just waited for him to sidle past it because like his only light source in there was his own flamethrower which is a bit of a mm-hmm. design flaw i'd say i just like could <laughs> give him a flashlight or something like that whatever you're like a headlamp um, you're from a mining crew i feel like you've got to have some sort of hard no mine not a headlamp because then it only lights it up if you're seeing it and uh <laughs> that, that, in a horror movie a headlamp is a death sentence <laughs> You turn around and blah, it's right there, which admittedly is what happened here anyway. But like, you know, with a headlamp, it would have been even scarier. Headlamp, but Um, you put another lamp like backwards. You've got two (laughs) Two headlamps. It's like that thing with like adding more headlamps until you've got a full 360. (laughs) It's like how animals will have like fake eyes on their backside so that like predators (laughs) don't come after them. (laughs) But like with two headlamps, double headlamp action. Uh, Anyway, yeah. So so Dallas is fucked. Uh, Again, the the, uh, director's cut discusses some stuff i'll I'll bring that up when we get to the port part of the movie where that part is but mm-hmm. um yeah so uh now they're they're down to a smaller number of crew and uh, the situation is getting more dire yes parker is getting more and more distressed he's getting more and more angry he wants to uh go after it and just kill the creature he drops the flamethrower on the table like we got to do this um lambert is just more and more distressed she wants him to bail and take the shuttle um get away from the ship but uh, ripley's like look four of us won't fit inside uh, uh four she wants to try dallas's plan again yep. <laughs> um and ash is eerily silent through the song ash is still in team we should take the killing machine back with us everything's mm-hmm. fine yeah uh but yeah what i actually like about this is that um lambert has basically just been having a protracted uh just anxiety attack all movie which is mm-hmm. very in character for her um Parker is initially, like, the funny guy. Uh, yeah. He's very much, like, you know, he, he's of the of the Parker and Brett duo. He's the one that talks the most, and he's the mm-hmm. one with, like, the, the snarky opinions on stuff. Uh, so he he's the funny guy. Um, and uh, when Kane dies, he gets very subdued. Uh, and when Brett dies, he gets angry. But Dallas tells him, like, all right, Parker, no heroics. And Parker kind of, like, stoically, like, acknowledges that, but is clearly very mm-hmm. upset. So it's just an interesting change that uh, this character who, again, you know, first third of the movie when they're playing with your expectations, could easily have been a stereotype. And <laughs> that he's yes. he's the one black guy and he's the funny guy. That's a combination, uh, especially in horror context. And instead, it's just kind of like, 
No, he's undergoing an arc, a very sad arc, as the crew is getting whittled <laughs> down, and he's getting more and more, like, Rambo-like, and, uh, mm-hmm. and so now, essentially, uh, Ripley is trying to keep things together, she's trying to keep the plan going, she's like, we can still solve this problem, but she's very mm-hmm. clearly having to do some work to keep, keep herself under control. Lambert is panicking, uh, but in a very reasonable way. She's like, I say we get in the escape pod and we get the hell out of here. And it's like, yeah, that would also work. That's a good plan, except there's too many of us. Um, and Parker is on the warpath now. Uh, and then there's Ash, who's just like, everything's chill and fine. <laughs> Why would you I'm going to cryptically stand in the background and like look very pointedly off into space. It's okay. <sighs> he's, he's Hannibal Lectering at this point, I swear to God. Yeah. Uh, but like, so it's just interesting seeing how all the characters are reacting to this stressful situation. They're not just kind of, you know, they're not meat for the grinder. They're all freaking out about mm-hmm. this in their own way. Uh, and especially Parker, I think they, they handle him in a very interesting way. So, yeah. Yes. Yes, uh, Ripley decides that they'll go in pairs through the vents to try and find it and kill it, kind of like a compromise between Dallas and Parker's plans. Um, and Parker runs off to get more fuel for their weapons, uh, as they're using flamethrowers, they require fuel. Yep. Ripley asks Ash if he or Mother has any suggestions, and he doesn't, you know, because he's very much on team, we can't kill the creature still, and she's like, look, if you've got a better idea, you better tell me now. Um and as she's now in charge, Ripley has access to the mother room and goes to consult with the great and mighty bright computer. Yes. And she asks kind of like, what would science do? Only to find her request is locked behind special order 937 what would for science, science officer do? only. <laughs> I mean, it's basically the gist of the question. Oh, I agree. I mean, I mean the, the, the way this console works is like you type in a whole question and then it spits out an answer. It was 1979. They didn't know what computers were going to work like. Uh, it's just very funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, She issues her emergency override to discover what the truth to order 973 was, or 937 was, uh, and she finds out that it rerouted the Nostradamo to pick up the alien specimen. Nostromo. I I autocorrected it to Nostradamus, and then I tried to Uh. rectify it in my brain, and it just went all downhill from there. Um, To pick up the alien specimen and return it for analysis, all other considerations being secondary, including the lives as crew expendable flashes on the screen. As she learns this, she leans back and Ash appears from that space behind her that we've been talking about in the mother room to try and offer an explanation, but Ripley is not having it. Well, that's her fault for keeping her back to an open door. (laughs) I can't believe she'd do that in a horror movie. Honestly, the mother room, quote unquote, is the most, seemed like the only safe space in the ship for a good portion of the movie. It's brightly lit. It's pretty sealed off and secure. So if anyone was going to make an error of leaving their back exposed in a horror movie, um, this is the room to do it in. It kind of like, I don't think think she even closed the door. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a smart move? No. Did it play on audience expectations in a clever way? Maybe. (laughs) Also, there's a, there's a character moment here that I think is very important, which is, uh, Ripley has at this point been holding it together very well, but when Crew Expendable hits the screen, she cracks. Like the, mm-hmm. all the all the freak out that's been sort of boiling under the surface starts showing through, and she yeah. I think she starts crying. Uh, and then Ash kind of like uh, you know appears in the shot and is like you know there's an explanation for this you know, and of course she's <laughs> not having it. She just learned that no. those deaths happened because Ash had orders from the company to let it happen. Um, yep. 
And uh, yeah. so this is the this is the HAL 9000 reveal, essentially. And mm-hmm. structurally, they are exactly the same. You know, the, the yes. mysterious corporate overlords redirect toward the mysterious alien thingy. And basically, uh, well, in 2001, uh, HAL goes nuts because uh, essentially a programming error. Uh, it was absolutely paramount that HAL's secret mission not be discovered by the crew. So when the secret mission does get discovered by the crew, HAL doesn't know how to respond to it except by killing them. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was it was a passive fuck up, whereas in this case this was active malice on the part of Wayland Yutani. Uh, but yes. so we learn now who the Hal Nine Thousand in this space horror scenario is. Yes, yeah, spoiler alert: it's Ash. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he uh, Ripley tries to return to the rest of the ship and call for Parker and Lambert, but Ash uh, busts through the door, sealing her in there with him. Uh, and as she keeps trying to run, Ash throws her around with strength that he shouldn't have. Um, mm-hmm. And eventually, like, gets her, like, almost knocked down the floor. And he rolls up a magazine trying to smother Ripley. Uh, but this Which commotion has attracted. Which was an odd choice. Um, yeah. I, the impression I got was that there's, well, okay, this feels like an odd thing to say. That there's something very wrong with him. Um, mm-hmm. in In, like, a programming sense. Uh, like... The way he's moving in this scene is very odd. It's it's like he's, well, it, I would guess, like, if I didn't know what was going on, like, oh, like, he's boiling with suppressed rage. Like, as he's rolling up the newspaper, like, his hands are, like, shaking as he's, like, twisting it. Um, and it's just, it, it gives me the impression that there's something deeply wrong with him on the inside. And this mm-hmm. kind of ties in with the thing I had earlier of, like, you know, it's interesting that he stopped Ripley from going into the, the dangerous space. I'm wondering if perhaps underneath this, he actually does sort of care about the crew. And I'm wondering if he's essentially facing an internal conflict. And that might be why. Because there's there's one shot early where he's got this odd bit of body language where he's isolated. He's not doing it for anyone's benefit. But he sort of has this, like, full body, like, shakedown. And then he goes and does his work. And it makes me think mm-hmm. that there's there's an internal conflict happening here. Uh, and that might include why he chose such a weird roundabout way to try and kill her. Because it's like, she's incapacitated. You have super strength. There are many, many simpler ways you could make this work. So yeah. why do this? I mean, part of it is perhaps the the weird Freudian symbolism of the movie. But also it could be, you know, an in-character reason. A Watsonian <laughs> rather than a doyalist explanation. Yes. Uh, and a- as he's sort of about to kill Ripley, the commotion attracts Parker and Lambert, who managed to rip Ash off of her... Uh, not before, you know, he gets a few good hits in on both of them. And he sort of, like, sputters and rise as Parker fends him off. And in between smashing and punching, he learns that Ash was a robot all along as he what? starts to, like, like this, like, goo... More, yeah. This is a goo movie, more like goop comes out of Ash. That's, like, very <laughs> he, much he not bleeds normal milk. fluid. It's really yeah. nasty. It's, it's uh, and, like, great. also, like, when he whacks him, uh, like, his whole head goes sideways and, and yeah. he, like, spins around but keeps trying to attack. It's very uh, harrowing. Like, they mm-hmm. must have done a lot of special effects work to make that happen uh, because it's kind of difficult to have a human actor involved in a very not-human-shaped moving thing, you know? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Riley Parker and Lambert manage to, you know, defeat the Ashbot, and uh, as he's like laying in pieces on the floor, they very gingerly, a little while later, begin to power him back on to see if he knows how to kill the alien. Just the uh, head, but though. Just the head, uh, and yeah. he sort of simply responds that they can't. It's impossible. Um, they don't understand what they're dealing with. It's a perfect organism, a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, or he admires its purity. Uh, it's a survivor without conscience. Um, and hearing and that- upon, yes, please. Sorry, uh, so so that part where he's, uh, they, I don't remember, I think like Ripley says something like, you admire it, don't you, or, or something like that, mm-hmm. or 
uh, and uh, he says something like, you know, I admire its purity that it kills without conscience or remorse or whatever. And that makes me think that he had a sneaky character arc in this movie <laughs> that genuinely, the, like, it's like, why would he admire that about it if it were something that he himself had? So mm-hmm. I genuinely believe that they were going with this thing with Ash, that he actually did not really want to kill the crew, but he kind of had to. And he mm. admires the alien because it could do his job without all this tedium and nonsense and feeling bad about it and this feeling of betrayal and all that stuff. And considering what right. they do in some sequels with the android characters, um, I think this was a deliberate choice. And it's it's clever because most of the character development in this movie is hidden in the background because, of course, the foreground is the plot with the, you know, scary alien. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, xenomorph, if you will. Yeah, but in order... <laughs> if you will. Uh, but in order for Ash's character arc to stay a twist, they can't really put that much focus on it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think what they did is that they sort of like wove it in in the in the tiny amount of screen time they could give his, his personal arc. Just all these hints that like, yeah, he's doing bad shit, but he genuinely does feel bad about it. And like uh, when Kane initially dies, uh, the shot of Ash, like as the alien pops out, like he does throw the hand out, but he also looks pretty horrified as Kane is dying. Uh, like mm-hmm. he, you know, he's not like, yes, come my child. None of that. He's he's like, <laughs> he's creeped out by it. Like he does admire yeah. the alien for what it is, but he also clearly does, I think, feel kind of bad about, you know, mulching up the human crew as a result. Mm-hmm. And the specific thing, the, the, the last words they give him about being like, you know, I admire that it doesn't have these, perceived weaknesses makes me think that that's what his whole thing is about and also he says something like you know i I can't lie to you about your chances but you have my sympathy or something like that Mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty Uh, much that exact quote aha go me uh but so basically (laughs) he's uh it's odd you know like he did sort of try to get them all killed but Mm -hmm. you know he's he's an android running under company protocols like the real villain is genuinely the company that's prioritizing the alien over human life it's the crew expendable and the fact that Ash has to do what they tell him to is kind of makes him a tragic figure. Uh, you know, also a murderer. But I'm just saying, yeah. I think it's interesting that they gave him little this column arc. A little column B. It, it's, it has yeah. more nuance to his character than if he was just evil robot. That makes this a more yep. uh, engaging movie on second and third watch throughs as well. As, you know, I mean, it's good the first time. Yeah. But no, then again, to key in on the Ash character, knowing the twist only makes this mm-hmm. a better twist in subsequent viewings. Yeah. Um, Your fave is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hearing that their chances are zero, Ripley declares that they're going to blow up the ship and take their chance in the shuttle. Uh, yep. Parker burning the ash pot to smithereens for good measure, melting him as it were an evil witch in the Wizard of Oz. Uh, <laughs> the final trio makes for the shuttle once again, uh, getting ready to blow the switches. They'll have 10 minutes to reach the shuttle once they set off the self-destruct sequence. Um, and they split up one last time. Parker and Lambert go to get as much coolant as they can while Ripley goes to prep the shuttle. Um, in there, she th- throws her hair up into a bun. Uh, and oh, as such she's a good sort look. of prepping, it's, uh, it's so good. Um, she hears the meowing of a cat. Did you forget about the secret eighth crew member? It's Jonesy <laughs> again. <laughs> um, well, she's sort of fourth crew member. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, she goes off to try and find the cat as Lambert and Parker start scrounging around for coolant, foregoing caution in favor of speed. Um, acquiring said coolant, they begin to continue on through the halls, Parker always kind of scouting a little bit right ahead as Lambert pushes the cart, frantically searching for the creature that could be stalking them. Uh, finally arriving at the gate to 
check that the bottles are fine. They, like, start going through them. Um, I wasn't 100% sure on why they had to check all the coolant bottles. I assume that it is some ship reason that exists. Uh, I, I wasn't entirely sure what exactly they were stocking up on. Uh, I thought maybe it was, like, you know, oxygen or something for the shuttle. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, stuff they would need to survive in space. Yeah. Um, I, you know, they had a lot to do and not a lot of time to do it in. Uh, that mm-hmm. was basically all we needed for this scene. It's like, you got to get a lot of stuff to make a space shuttle space worthy. So that makes sense. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, so yeah. they stop kind of at the doorway to start checking the bottles very frantically. They're going through it very, very quickly. As they're doing this, we're cross-cutting with Ripley, who is off looking for Jones the cat. <laughs> God, the Ripley scene. Actually, you know what? This is another another last bit of playing with your expectations. Well, not the last bit. Uh, because Ripley is off by herself in a mm-hmm. dark, shadowy room with a ton of blind corners, picking through, quietly whispering for Jonesy. And it was just like, like, she's tense, you're tense. The scene takes, it feels like forever. Um, mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Parker and Lambert are having this incredibly fast-paced, like, you know, loud, stressful, you know, metal clanging. And the the the, the stark difference in general volume levels between these two scenes was as they keep cross-cutting. Like, the Parker and Lambert one is loud, they're shouting, they're clattering around. Um, the... Uh, the Ripley and Jonesy one is dead silent because mm-hmm. it's just her and and her whispering and like if you had to guess which of these scenes the xenomorph would pop up in the movie has trained you to expect it to be in Ripley's scene because yes. this is the exact same thing that happened with Brett and also it usually seems to go after people who are alone um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> but as we'll see, Ripley will only find Jones the cat, which she quickly shoves into its space cat carrier, which looks just like <laughs> a regular cat carrier, except it's got like <laughs> plexiglass in front instead of a cage. Um, and as she it does so, like we they cut made back. it from scratch, actually, like they like welded it together at some point, which is just such yeah. a delightful visual. I love this, love this cat. Um, and as she does so, Lambert uh, finds herself face to face with the xenomorph in all of its oh, gooey God. glory. Uh, oh, Parker's screaming at her to get out of the way. She just sort of like stands frozen with fear. Uh, Basically, and- Parker is behind the xenomorph and he has a flamethrower. So he cannot hit the xenomorph without hitting uh, Lambert. But Lambert has nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're it's just a very bad situation. They're flanking the thing, but they can't do anything to it. Yeah. Uh, and as this sort of like tragic situation is playing out, we begin to hear screaming and uh, battle cries and everything as the alien gets going and what the alien does best and Ripley yep. hearing the commotion rushes to their location as their screams sort of echo on the intercom and both of them die in a very rapid sequence uh, yeah, it's and brutal. arrive yeah she finds their bodies sort of like framed in just a way where it's a little hard to make them out but we the audience Tasteful, understand what has happened like, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, there's not a lot of, like, actual gore in this movie, but you always sort of see exactly enough to sort of understand what has happened. Um, Also, I'd say, like, even if we didn't see the bodies, uh, the the way that they did the screaming over the intercom was it went on long enough that it was very, very chilling. Like, in horror movies, sometimes it's like you get one quick scream out and then it's, like, eerily silent. No, this goes mm-hmm. on for a hot minute. There's, like, variation in it. It's actually yeah. some quite impressive voiceover work <laughs> in a very, very unpleasant way. So, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now but, uh, only only one member of the crew remains. It's Ripley. Um, and she's alone with the thing. And the tone of the movie shifts one more time because mm-hmm. structurally... You and your scrappy crew of survivors trying to get away from the scary monster is very different from 
you completely alone drifting in space with the scary monster. Like, so Mm -hmm. Ripley, who's been holding it together quite well, all things considered, uh, stops holding it together so well. (laughs) She's still very much getting shit done, but like, there's no more stoicism. Like, she's having a full-blown, like, emotional breakdown while she's getting shit done. Um, yes. She's yeah. inputting the self-destruct code, sobbing the whole time as Mother is it's warning her of, bit the of danger. Acting. Yeah. So, and she's like, so good. She's, like, carefully reading through the instructions as she's, like, fighting back tears. It's just this incredible mm-hmm. piece of acting. And, like, can you, of course this was a star-making role for Sigourney Weaver. She had, like, <laughs> the best... Like, everyone does a very good job, but she was the unknown, and then she carries the entire final, like, chunk yeah. of the movie by herself. And she does it incredibly well. Like, like it's a it's a meaty part to bite into for any actor, and she manages yeah. to like hit a home run on top of that, which is just incredibly impressive. It's so in good. terms of performance. Yeah. Um, turning the self destruct on, she has ten minutes to get off the ship, and we'll sort of have like a little bit of a countdown going in the background, even though we'll jump around a bit in that ten minutes. It does not eh. follow perfectly to the ten minutes in the movie, which I think is a a pro, not a con, but it is yes. important to note nonetheless. It increases the disorientation. Uh, yes. We, similar to Ripley, don't actually know how much time she has left at any given time because when you're in a stressful situation, your perception of time is altered. Um, Mm -hmm. This is just, yeah. I mean, human perception of time is already not great, but it gets worse (laughs) in emotionally trying circumstances. So it it totally fits. It puts us in our head more. Mm -hmm. Also, this part of the movie is hard to visibly watch just because they have very bright stroby lights. I had this on a big screen and I was like, oh, God. Up until now, the movie has done a really, really good job of purposefully um, never hiding anything on screen, so to speak, but like using light and shadow to create areas where things could be hiding. But the like mm-hmm. you could see everything fairly clearly. The the lighting is a very clear but stark situation. Here, we're adding more steam effects. We're adding more strobe light effects where it's actually difficult to physically see where Ripley is and what she's running through. It's disorienting. Much as it would be for Ripley, it's a very intentional change. This is, you know, yeah. we're, we're past the, like, creeping horror part. Everything is dangerous all the time now. Um, it might have needed, like, a seizure warning, though. It was giving me a yeah. headache. And that was a bad sign. Um, <laughs> but it was a yes. very deliberate design choice. It, it's meant to be disorienting. And it adds to the feeling of, like, if the xenomorph were in this shot, I wouldn't be able to tell. And that's mm-hmm. scary. That's a very good bit of fear to have right now. Because she's alone on the ship with it. She doesn't know where it is. That's a very exactly. important thing to have. Yeah. Exactly. Um, she manages to run through the halls and catch uh, Jonesy's <laughs> cat carrier. Uh, this, this poor cat. Um, this poor cat. The PA system informing us that she only has three minutes until the self-destruct will be irreversible. Uh, Ripley kind of like catches her breath for a moment, leaning against this one uh, wall, and in doing so, um, spots the <laughs> spots the xenomorph. Uh, dropping Jonesy as sort of like a just I don't know if she did this intentionally or just out of fear I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be like a distraction moment or what and she runs back to try and stop the explosion since the xenomorph is between her and the shuttle uh, I think it was a fear response I, I don't think yeah. it was a purposeful sacrifice of the cat that she per- deliberately braved the xenomorph <laughs> to go rescue before uh, yes. and there is a shot where the xenomorph is just kind of like looking down and Jonesy's little ears are just visible in shot and I was like oh mm-hmm. god <laughs> Oh, no. Um, With 30 seconds remaining, she just can't make it in time to override the detonation and uh, kind of, like, rails against Mother. She's sobbing and cursing, and it's just the worst situation. Um, She has no choice now but to make it to the escape pod, even though the xenomorph is in the way. Yes. Yeah. Um, Flamethrower in hand, she heads back for the shuttle, 
blaring lights and steam making it nearly impossible to see and we are forced to walk nearly every single step with her as she tries desperately to survive finding the cat carrier and continuing on past where she last saw the xenomorph um closing herself in the shuttle with the carrier ripley only has a minute left to abandon ship 30 seconds now and the shuttle is launching beeping and turbulence take over as the countdown continues only calming down the last 10 seconds as the Nostradomo uh, explodes, leaving Ripley and Jonesy? Yep. Jones? Jonesy. The only survivors. Um, Ripley declares, I got you, you son of a bitch, and then retrieves Jones, the only other uh, living member of the crew, putting him in one of their stasis pods. Um, I was so sure that the alien was somehow, like, possessed the cat. <laughs> what? <laughs> the first time really? I watched this, the first time I watched this movie, I hadn't seen any spoilers for it. This was, like, back in high school or something. Oh, impressive. And I, I, I knew vaguely what the alien looked like, but I didn't know the plot, right? right? And so I'm like, okay, the thing has primed me for this. The cat is definitely going to be, like, the, the, the Chekhov's cat <laughs> of the situation. The secret bad guy. You know? <laughs> He's, the, very early on, the alien had access to this cat. There's, like, a tiny face hugger or something inside him. Like, I just, I'm Aww. so sure of it. Spoiler a alert. Cat-sized that's cat-sized face that's hugger. True. That's a, I, my brain can't decide if that's cute or horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> little column A, little column B. Yeah, um, yeah. But, Joan, Jonesy is not a uh, false flag here. He's just a regular cat who has survived <laughs> incomprehensible horror. And <laughs> Honestly, Jonesy's taken this whole thing very well. Like, even yeah. when Brett is killed, Jonesy does not visibly react. Doesn't even blink. No. It's just, like, nope. staring. Like, wow, that's rough. <laughs> Have Jonesy fun, buddy. Um, after closing like, him never into fed the stasis. Me anyway. <laughs> yes. After closing him into the stasis pod, she strips down to get into the pod as well, only for uh, the... So she's kind of like taking off her jacket and stuff, and it's standing in front of this part of the shot that the back of the ship just looks like the xenomorph, and then slowly mm-hmm. the hand starts to move, and you realize that it doesn't just look like the xenomorph, it is the xenomorph. Is that Disguise... in the background of the shot? or oh, some of the It's shot... in the background of the shot, and then it kind of like cuts to me from uh, Ripley's POV, and we see the hand move, so it's a little bit of both. Um, okay, hold on. Um, So... What I remember is that uh, as she's, like, getting close to a part of the wall, you know, the ductwork on these ships looks like the xenomorph. It's like this tangle mm-hmm. of cables and weird shit. Uh, but as she gets close, like, there's a part of it that's noticeably kind of slimy. And then as she gets close, bam, it moves and it's a hand. And it's like, it actually moves pretty quickly. Like, it sort of lashes out at her. And she sort of, like, backs up very suddenly. And uh, as she gets a better look at it, she sees that the xenomorph has tucked itself into the wall, like, with the ductwork. Um... I didn't remember seeing it in the background of the shot before that moving, but I didn't notice it was there until I saw the slimy <laughs> shot. So, like, who knows what I could remember, be happening? I, I kind of clocked it, like, I clocked that it looked similar. Uh, and the way that they cut it, it's so close together that you can kind of move from that to the other and make that jump. But it's it's mm. intentionally nebulous and you're unsure. Because in theory, she just, the danger should be gone. She just blew up the xenomorph, right? Well, I mean, well, like, maybe. we hadn't, it's one of those, we didn't see the body. So, you know, like, <laughs> we, we didn't know where the xenomorph went. So, and then they, they give you a while, you know, she's like kind of, mm-hmm. you know, hugging Jonesy and like sort of emotionally coming down from the stress and, and like undressing and stuff like that. And, you know, I was checking, I was like, there's 12 minutes left in the movie. It can't all be credits. I know <laughs> how my tropes work. It's got to be on the shuttle, but where? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and seeing it pop out, uh, Ripley runs and hides in a closet, kind of observing the creature from afar as it rouses itself in what is near silence. She slowly creeps into one of the exosuits left in the ship, um, never taking her eyes off of the alien 
and uh, kind of grabs a weapon that's also hidden there. Again, the scene happens very slowly, but I'm running through it uh, with relative speed. Right. And at this point, like the xenomorph, it's it's like tucked up into the wall. It's clearly like getting ready for the long haul. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not prowling around or doing anything. So for the first time in the movie, Ripley actually kind of has the alien on the back foot. Like it's mm-hmm. not stalking her. She's got her eye on it. And it doesn't necessarily seem to know she's there. Like, yeah. it lashed out when she got close, but, like, the thing with the Xenomorph's design is it has no visible eyes, so you don't actually mm-hmm. ever know where exactly it's looking. So, the impression we get from this is that it actually doesn't quite know she's there, which right. is an interesting change. It's an important change, too, because it kind of gives her this whole opening to do something about the Xenomorph. Um, mm-hmm. You think she's going to just fire at it with a regular weapon, uh, but instead she kind of, like, begins to chant to herself a little rhyme about how you are my lucky star... Um, and she prepares to flood the shuttle with quote unquote special gases, which is what is written <laughs> on the panel. Really? Oh god. Yeah. Um never stopping the chant, she assesses the alien, which screeches as she unleashes some steam of quote unquote special gases all over it. Um uh, her breathing it getting heavier. <laughs> yes. And she's the... in a spacesuit at this point. Uh, yes, yeah. She put on like a yeah. yeah, like a spacesuit filtration, all that jazz. Um, she's breathing heavier as the alien makes a final play for her, but as it lunges towards her, she opens the airlock and sends it hurtling out into space, where it tries to crawl into the engine of the ship, but she makes the final, final turn of this, uh, combat and blasts it with the engines, and it is bye-bye, roasted alien. You. She did- there's a slight there's a middle step it catches the inside of the door and she hits it with this like harpoon gun which does knock Mm. it out of the ship but also tethers it to the ship so then it can climb under the engine and then she fires the engine thruster which like after a few seconds does launch it away Mm -hmm. uh ripley third officer gives the final report of the tale of her ship the rest of the crew are dead, cargo and ship destroyed, and in six weeks she will reach the frontier and hopefully be found by the network. Uh, the last survivor of the Nostrodom, no, Nostrom, Nostromo. 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 There we go. Nostromo. There we go. Uh, signs off and goes to sleep with her cat. The other survivor that they kept forgetting was also. <laughs> she kept being like, I'm I don't the think- last survivor. And I'm like, Jonesy is there. <laughs> Jonesy's not on the company payroll. I hope. <laughs> well, um, he should be. <laughs> he should be, yeah. Oh, God, what a movie. And um, that's Alien. A very stressful yeah. experience, but so, so good. <laughs> so good, yeah. The the final catharsis of that, I kept waiting for it to pull the rug out from under me, and mm-hmm. then it didn't. Instead, like, yeah. it started fa- like a crossfade over Ripley's face, and I was like, oh, God, what is it? But then it was just like a, a pretty space <laughs> shot, and I was like, okay, we're good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, oh, man. Uh, oh. So the one thing about the finale is this is the first and only time in the movie that we get to see the alien as, like, a full body shot. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's okay. The problem is, it's not just a full body shot, it's stretched out. And when yes. it is stretched out, you can really tell it's a very skinny guy in a suit. You know? Yes. <laughs> it, it, when it's sort of hunched over and moving like a, like a digitigrade creature, that's a lot scarier. But when it's like fully extended and like floating off in space or like clinging to the, uh, the engine, you're like, oh, that's a guy. And that's yeah, unfortunate that's, that's... because like... That's a dude. <laughs> yeah, it's just a it's just a dude with a really weird shaped head. Uh, and uh, there's nothing, you know. It was a limitation, you know. It's it's difficult to make a rubber suited alien that does not, on some level, look like a human in a rubber suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with limited CGI, like even limited green screen technology, they they couldn't do the trick they do now with digitigrade creatures, where like you have the section of the human's leg and then you green screen that out and you just leave the um the 
back bent uh, elongated foot portion as mm. the you know what I'm talking about. They do yeah. this in Del Toro movies all the time. That man loves fawns more than life itself. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so that's basically the only effect complaint that I have with this movie, which is that in mm-hmm. the very final bit, we see the alien clearly enough that it sort of removes some of the mystique of how just alien and disturbing it is when we can't see the whole thing. But that's, you know, that, that's just a limitation of the medium. And it's a problem mm-hmm. they solved for aliens. Uh, <laughs> so as uh, mentioned... Yes. I, I did these back to back, and I think that's the way to do it because Alien, yeah. if I just watched Alien and then like tried to go to sleep for the night, oh baby, that would not have been happening. Um, but Aliens is like, it feels like a protracted apology to Ripley for the events of Alien. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're, we're really sorry about that. How would you like to physically wrestle the source of all your trauma in a giant mech suit? And also, here's a hunky boyfriend and a new daughter and a robot friend. <laughs> She's like, that'll do. Um, <laughs> Fine, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll take it. Um, but uh, the, the effects of Alien uh, are like a really, really good prototype for the, the VFX they sort of perfect in Aliens. Specifically, mm-hmm. the aliens blending into the background and holding very yes. still while, while the humans kind of creep around. So... In Alien, that does happen on occasion, but a lot of the deaths are a lot more jump scary. Like, pretty much the only time they actually do the alien is there in the background of the shot blending in is in the final scene where it's tucked in with the ductwork, which unfortunately is also when it's stretched out to its longest and you can be like, those are human legs, okay. Um, yeah. But in uh, in Aliens, the first scenes where we actually see full-blown, full-blown <laughs> slash full-fledged xenomorphs uh, is when they uh, uncoil from the walls they've been adhered to, just chilling in the background of the shot for like five straight minutes. It's incredibly effective. Because, uh, like, you know it's coming. You know it's mm-hmm. going to happen. But the trick is the alien detector only works if they're moving, which means uh-huh. if they don't, then they're. So they it's just, just perfect. Stay very still. No one will. Yeah, it just know. it builds up the, the exact right kind of like. They, they blend in very well, especially in this environment, which it, it, it's very organic. Another cave very similar to the one in Alien, where they mm-hmm. just blend in perfectly with the wall decoration and just the sort of inside of a ribcage aesthetic the whole place has. So, like, you can't tell them apart from, like, the the, the vertebrae greebling on the sides of the walls. And it's <laughs> yeah. it's just a very effective bit of horror. And then, you know, even then, like, the full body shots, we very rarely see them. Like, we see brief flashes mm-hmm. Almost all of that movie is Marines very determinedly firing at things off screen, which is fine. You know, that's much scarier. Um, yeah, but then again, think... in the finale with aliens, sorry, it's it, they have the alien queen who is not a human in a suit. She's a puppet and it looks like an absolute nightmare to puppeteer, but they oh, do a yeah. good job. She does not look like a person in a suit. She looks like a giant monster and it's mm-hmm. great. It's incredibly well done. So it's it's sort of like all the things that they prototyped in Alien, they sort of perfected VFX wise for aliens. Uh, mm-hmm. And that that was the only bummer I had watching Alien itself. It's like I was expecting so much creepy camouflage, like, you know, where is it? Is it that piece of ductwork? Is it that piece of piping? Oh, it was that piece of ductwork. That was my third guess. And they did that <laughs> a couple times. But then Aliens, yeah, uh, it think, just fed me on that. I think what kind of is the differentiation between the two movies for me, because they're both very good at what they're trying to do. But I think Alien is a much more psychological horror feature Mm. than aliens is not that there aren't elements of that in aliens and not there aren't elements of the like camouflage monster in alien this is such a hard movie to differentiate which is much like (laughs) i my favorite sequel naming convention of all time is too fast too furious but aliens is a very close second but it does make it hard to discuss (laughs) both in the same uh sentence um yeah i i think that 
alien accomplishes a much more um, human source of fear, even though there is this xenomorph, there is a very scary Mm. alien monster hunting the crew. What is the source of horror for me in this movie is more of anxiety um, and uh, like a lack of source of who to trust, Uh, a much more mental uh, situation I'm trying to figure out more so than it is okay like the alien is a known quantity to a certain point like it's there and it is yep. trying to kill you and it's stressing me out that it's there but like what's up with this <laughs> more tight-knit uh, group of characters whereas I feel like in aliens um, the aliens themselves are more of a source of horror even though there are still some of those psychological elements uh, yeah you know they, no they, I agree they, uh, they perfected the technology to the point where they can make them more important to the actual fear factor of the movie yeah, one thing I actually quite like about Aliens is that it is not just Alien again. Um, mm-hmm. it, yes. It's quite different structurally, right down to the emotional arc. I mean, for one thing, there's no question of who the main character is this time. <laughs> um, it's it's very much Sigourney Weaver. Um, and they've got, like, they've got a few other things. And it also, it almost feels like sort of a response to Alien. Um, mm-hmm. Not trying to do the same thing again, but sort of trying to be like, what ground didn't we cover in Alien? Well... In Alien, it was a small crew with no backup and no help and nowhere to go uh, and no equipment. It was all repurposed mining tools, for crying out loud. Like, so what if we got a big posse of, like, military-trained badasses with just tons of guns and we let them take on the alien? Uh, How would that go? And uh, it, it... it's the kind of thing, like, in our modern day, I would call, like, oh, it's like they're they're responding to the kind of, like, you know, CinemaSin-style criticism of, like, plot hole, dang, why didn't they just use a big gun? But in this <laughs> case, it's like, this is a genuinely interesting thing to explore. Like, yeah. how well would the U.S., the, the Earth, I guess, the Earth military work <laughs> against the Earth aliens? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and it ends up producing the effect of, like, well, it doesn't go well at all. <laughs> um, they got, I mean, in it. In uh, Aliens, the the initial buildup to, like, everything's going to go to shit is actually quite well-crafted because, of course, Ripley, once again, only sane person, is like, here's what happened, they're incredibly dangerous, here's what they can do, it ripped through my crew in less than 24 hours, it was really, really dangerous, I'm super scarred from the experience, it sucks. And then, of course, Wayland yutani Corp is like, hmm... Cool, but we're still going to blame you for the, yeah, for the explosion. And we don't really believe you. And also, we built a human colony on that planet, and we haven't heard any complaints. And it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) And it almost gets you to root for the aliens to, like, just mulch (laughs) up this colony just so everyone actually believes Ripley. (laughs) Which is quite a change, because, of course, an alien, you don't want the alien killing anybody, you know? You kind of like these guys. And at minimum, the way they frame it is so horrifying, it just freaks you out so much. But the fact that Aliens almost starts with, like, we all know where this is going, but mm-hmm. also nobody in the movie believes Ripley. You're kind of like, well, now I hope it happens just to spite <laughs> you. And it it does work. Right. And then, of course, you know, when that does start happening, like, you know, they're, they're like, oh, hey, good news, guys. We found all the colonists. They appear to all be hanging out under this cooling tower for the for the colony reactor. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, they must just be having a party down there. <laughs> I'm mm. sure it's totally fine. Yes. And they go and expel all these Marines who've just been like, you know, joshing and being obnoxious and talking about how how excited they are to like bone all the colonist ladies. And, and you're just like, God, these guys are stupid and gross. Uh, <laughs> and then they go in there with their big guns. And like, then it turns out, hey, bad news, guys, we can't use the big guns. We're under a reactor. It would be very bad. 
And of course, you know, you tell the, the, the big dick Marines, hey, you can't use your big guns. They're like, okay, mom. And then, of course, they use the big guns anyway. And you're, you're never going to believe what the yep. ticking clock at the end of that movie turns out to be. But it's just like, you know, you're, you're kind of sitting there just like waiting. You know, you've got your popcorn ready. You're like, all right, yeah. when's it going to start? Is... And then when it does start, it's actually still horrifying. Like, you don't really like these guys. But the fact that it turns so quickly... <laughs> <laughs> and they just start getting mulched up and like by the end of that there's like three of them left there's mm-hmm. a light it, it's it's um yeah it, it's the it's the spunky girl one it's the uh it's hicks the only motherfucker i respect and uh <laughs> it's the game over man guy and those are the only yes. three marines who survive that initial just everything going to shitness and a lot of it is like friendly fire like somebody gets jumped by an alien and he sets off his flamethrower and it like hits the ammo bag that they've confiscated from everybody and Which it explodes very different from alien where friendly fire is explicitly the uh thing that prevents um you know, the death of two of the last crew, well, doesn't prevent the death up, but prevents the saving of the last couple, Parker. Yeah. And, uh, that's the thing. Lambert. Like, l- losing their own is never an option in Alien. Mm-hmm. It's every single crew death is a tragedy. And with Parker and Lambert, it's just like, it's a tragedy, you know? That, that they mm-hmm. just, there was no way out of that situation because there was no way Parker was going to sacrifice Lambert and there was nothing Lambert could do. She didn't have a weapon. Um, yeah. So, um, whereas in. In aliens, of course, these these big dick marines with way too much, you know, guns and ammo, it doesn't do them any good, especially because it's like, hey, if you shoot these with a gun, they bleed acid. <laughs> you idiots. So, yeah. And there's yeah, this this uh, moment. Uh... Sorry, just real quick. There's a moment in aliens where you can kind of see the gears like shift in Ripley's head. And she's like, oh, fuck, I'm the main character, aren't I? And she like wrestles <laughs> controls of the car and like drives in to save the last three marines to make it out of there. Uh, and then after that, the tone of the movie completely changes, kind of similar to Alien, of like, yeah. all right, Ripley's in charge. What do we do? What do we got? We've got very limited resources. We're in a facility with a lot of points of entry. How are we going to protect ourselves? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and it adds the emotional arc, of course, of Ripley and Newt, which is something the original movie didn't really have because it was playing with our expectations too much of like who these characters were, who was going to be the main character. Anyway, right. good sequel. Perfects a lot of stuff I liked about Alien. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> yes, that has been our uh, five-minute version of Movie Struck <laughs> Aliens episode. <laughs> Sorry, I told you beforehand. I was like, I can't separate my thoughts on these. <laughs> you were like, it's fine. It's totally cool. okay. That's sort of like drawing back to the thoughts on um, Alien. Uh, kind of to bring us home for the end of the episode here, do you have any sort of closing mm. thoughts on Alien, the movie? Any situation you might recommend our viewers watch it in? Um, I would ask, did you like it? But I feel like this is another, we've had a string of episodes of good movies here where I'm like, I feel like asking, yeah. did you like the movie? is sort of a moot point. Otherwise you wouldn't have watched it at all. Um, yeah. what are, what are you wrapping, well, wrap it up here for me? Well, I think a, a good sign of how much I liked Alien is that, uh, I was initially not sure which of Alien or Aliens I wanted to do this episode on, but as mm-hmm. I was explaining it, I was like, I had so many thoughts on how Alien was playing with your expectations. You know, the realization of like, wait, that scene with Ripley was a fake out to make us think she was an antagonist. That's so interesting. Um, And the more I thought about it, the more I realized just how much had gone into this structurally very simple movie. You know, Mm -hmm. like you can summarize Alien in like one sentence. Uh, You know, it's... uh, a yeah. uh, creepy alien organism turns out to be able to parasitize other life forms in its reproductive cycle, and then its kid kills everybody on the ship except for one person. Like, it's a very simple structure, but what makes mm-hmm. it work is the execution. Yes. And this is the case in so many movies. You know, I, I describe a lot of things I like as, you know, a simple meal well made. Like, it's, it's, it's a very simple set of tropes, but the execution, the sound design, the cinematography, mm-hmm. the set design. Oh, my God, the set design. Yes. Like, the, the miniature of the ship 
Like the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God, it's exquisite. Like this is, this is something that's, uh, that's sort of easy to not notice because if the set designers are doing their job right, you don't think of it as a set. You think of it as where the movie's happening. Uh-huh. Um, and the prop designers, same way. But like ship design, you know, spaceship design, it's an art form. And uh, I was <laughs> I was actually just watching a, um, a Corridor Crew video about this. Uh, mm. Special effects artists react to stuff. And they got Adam Savage on to talk about uh, some of the ship designs he'd done for Star Wars uh, Episodes 1 and 2. Uh, two and three, maybe? Uh, whatever. Uh, and of course, you know, the ship design in any sci-fi setting kind of reflects the universe. And in Star mm-hmm. Wars, you know, everyone is kind of broke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything is kind of busted. Uh, everything's a little bit asymmetrical. Things are rusty or, you know... Uh, and then, you know, in contrast, in like in mm-hmm. Star Trek, everything is clean and symmetrical and, yep. and pristine on the outside. Like they're all still greebled because that gets you the sense of scale. For, OK, I've ter- dropped this term like three times. For those of you who <laughs> do not know, greebling is a thing that people do in like set and miniature design. It essentially it just adds texture, basically. Yes. So like if you, you know, the outside of a Borg cube where it's like it's got all these little cubes sticking out of it, that's greebling. Um and a lot of miniature designers will, like, greeble with just, like, kit-bashed parts from other sets. It's like, okay, we've got this little, like, dome from the top of this ship. We'll glue it to the outside and call it, like, a cooling vent or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And the Nostromo is exquisitely greebled. It's gorgeous. Uh, and it looks like a big, chunky piece of, you know, just hardware. Mm-hmm. And the idea that humans are in there, it's it makes sense, but it's like, that's so much space for just seven people. And it's like, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> The xenomorph could be hiding anywhere. And that opening shot of just, like, how cluttered and weird the inside of the ship was is just like, oh, no. <laughs> They're it, fun- it could hide under a table up. and yeah, they'd never find it. Expect um, the worst. Yeah, so I think uh, Alien is just, it's such an interesting and well-done movie on, like, every possible level. Just the acting is really good, the casting is really good, mm-hmm. and the cinematography tricks you a lot, but it never lies to you. Yeah. Uh, and it's... Uh, and the, again, I've, the sound design, I feel like I'm going to need to watch it again, like with all the lights on this time. So I'm not trying to freak myself out so I can just <laughs> appreciate the sound design because I remember it being so effective that I could barely even pay attention to it. Like, yeah, I was too busy, like gripping the, the, the couch for dear life. Maybe the thing that strikes me, I the execution of this movie is just absolutely incredible. I had watched it in a number of film classes in uh, college because ah. of that. But uh, sound oh, design yes. was one that really? I think. I noticed the least on my first watch and now watching it back for this podcast, I made a special note of it because it is maybe the single most effective use of absolute silence in a movie at multiple Mm -hmm. points throughout alien. Um, And there's so little score that when it does come up, it, it makes it feel frantic and panicked and the use of quiet moments of just very simple foliage sound effects is so incredibly poignant and adds so much mm-hmm. to the fear and the tension of every scene that it's in it's it sounds beautiful but it doesn't sound beautiful yeah. in a way that's necessarily fun to listen to it sounds beautiful in a way that only works in the context of the scene that it is in as opposed it's, to it's like, like a piece of moving score that might sound gorgeous <laughs> listening to it on spotify you could not listen to alien in a void <laughs> No, you just have an anxiety attack. I, I'm, like, mm-hmm. thinking about the way they scored uh, the Chernobyl miniseries, where they, mm. like, sampled the interior sounds of, like, the sister reactor to reactor number four, and then they just turned the score out from that, and the whole thing feels incredibly anxiety-inducing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And I mean, like, the thing is, I cannot remember a single point in Alien where they played music. Like, I know it had to have happened. It just happens like, maybe almost when the Nostromo was blowing up? when, like, things are going to shit. So if the alien, what? like, jumps out, you might hear a sudden burst of, like, horns ah. or strings or when right. things jump are, scare like... noises. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or um, at some points early on in the movie when they're investigating the new, you know, SOS signal, you might hear, like, a little bit of this light music underneath it, mm. but it's extremely infrequent and always as a background point to whatever is the main source of sound of that scene. I think one thing I can say for the the soundtracking, and, and again, both it and Alien 2, is that by the midpoint, sorry, Aliens, the midpoint of Aliens, <laughs> I was reflexively turning the volume down whenever it got quiet mm-hmm. because I knew, <laughs> I knew it was always just winding up to kick me in the teeth. <laughs> so like yep. it would get really quiet. Like they'd just be like very slowly walking through a room and they, they sort of play with it again in the same way that like if you do a scare every time you have the opportunity, it stops being as effective. Like, Pretty much any time they were walking through a very quiet area very carefully, somebody would knock something over. Like, mm-hmm. so every loud noise was not inherently a scare. Uh, right. And actually, in one of those scenes, they did two fake outs, uh, you know, adjusted for inflation between Alien and Aliens. Uh, they're <laughs> like, they've got they've got something on the movement scanner. And they're like, oh, God, what is it? Uh, and as they're very slowly picking their way through this destroyed lab, somebody knocks something over and it makes a clattering noise. And then when they get out into the hallway, something rushes past in front of the camera. But then it turns out to be Newt, the the little girl, uh, mm-hmm. not an alien, obviously, because if it were an alien, <laughs> it would have just popped out and mulched somebody. Um, right. Oh, man. Uh, it's, it's, it's effective across the board. Like, we could sit here for hours and just talk about how <laughs> effective everything in both of these movies, yeah. but Alien in particular, were. Um, yeah. I Technically think in terms speaking... Of, like, Yes. The effectiveness of Alien is just, you know, tens across the board. Like, yes. as mentioned, like, the only complaint I have is, like, they had a little trouble making a rubber suit to fit a human in that did not look like something that could fit a human mm-hmm. in it. Like, but they compensate for that by they? almost exclusively showing the alien, like, in uh, some form of shadow or partial picture and briefly. Yep. So it's, you really don't latch onto that until that final jet engine scene anyway. Exactly. Um, and they weren't designing this movie to hold up to being paused every second in comb yes. through. Like if you pause on the shots of the alien, you could be like, that's goofy. <laughs> it's got a human hand in there. But like, mm-hmm. that that's not what it was made for. You know, that, that's not what it was shot for. I was watching it on a higher definition screen than they were probably ever design, designing it for. And I feel like if I'd been watching it on like an older CRT monitor with a little bit of fuzz, it would have been yeah. so much more effective in that specific victim it's just it's really technically good mm-hmm. and then there's there's one thing i do want to highlight just because again with the back-to-back movie watching experience you can kind of trace an emotional arc for ripley through alien and aliens and i choose to ignore all later sequels because i have secret <laughs> knowledge of the future that they undo a lot of the stuff i liked in aliens 3 mm-hmm. um, and also you know alien aliens once you've done that you can't pluralize it more, you know? You gotta break the naming yes. convention, which is a sign that they should have never tried. They should have done a um, prequel called Alien. <laughs> Alien. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, the Xenomorph's point of view sequel that's actually just the first movie all over again called Alien-ing. Uh, I feel mm. like they really they should They do have it as a high a school whole... drama, and they call it Alienated with, like, a twangy <laughs> opening. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but the, the thing is, like, the first movie is just a nightmare. It's even kind of like paced and structured like a nightmare. Uh, mm-hmm. Aliens is a little more paced and structured like a nightmare, up to and including like not all of the logic quite holding up if you really think about it. Like the fact that they missed that the drop ceilings were a point of entry to their base was pretty inexcusable. Um, mm-hmm. But you're watching through this and it's like this is an incredibly scarring experience for Ripley. In the last few minutes of Alien, they sort of let you exhale for the first time in two hours. You know, she's got the mm-hmm. cat. 
she's and then you know they get you because initially she's like she's got the cat she's fine she's she's getting ready for cryosleep and then there's an alien but then she gets rid of it and it's like okay now you can actually hug the cat and go into cryosleep and like record your last log and have a nice long cry and a nap um and you know she's still obviously very scarred from the experience and then they play that up in aliens that like this is the kind of thing you don't just get better from especially mm-hmm. when you know you've, you've got nobody waiting for you and nobody to help you through it and then when she sort of goes, she's, like, having these terrible nightmares. Because, of course, you'd have nightmares after something like that. Especially yeah. when you know that nobody's trying to solve the problem. You know the problem is really out there. You know it's real. You know, of course you're going to have nightmares. And then she's, like, she she chooses to go back out and confront it. Because that way maybe she can save other people from dealing with the same thing. And then they give her Newt. Somebody who is living through the same thing and having the exact same trauma response. You know, the same trouble sleeping. The same... Part of the way they characterize Newt is incredibly well done. It's the the child actor is not fantastic, but the lines they give her are very good because she ends mm. up sort of she's got this sort of very practical, blunt attitude that comes from the sort of horrible trauma she's lived through. Where it's like yes. she you know she's having she's worried about nightmares, and Ripley's like, well, you know what? I think uh, she's got like her little doll's head, and she's like, oh, I don't think you know Clarabelle has any nightmares. And it's like Ripley, that's <laughs> because she's a piece of plastic. And it's like, yeah, you can't really pull the your doll will protect you when you know that monsters are real and have killed your entire family. <laughs> um, yes, and um, uh, so so she's got a lot of blunt questions about death and monsters. Uh, but Ripley helping her through that helps her heal. And then by the end of the movie, she gets to go in a giant fuck-off mech suit and wrestle her nightmares into space. And it's just this beautiful <laughs> bit of catharsis for Ripley. Like I said, it's it feels like a protracted apology for the stuff she got put through in Alien. Mm-hmm. You know, the best therapy. Literally physically beating up your monsters. Uh, yes. 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 Uh, but to sort of bring it back to Alien and kind of wrap up the... Put a nice <laughs> little bonus podcast. <laughs> We'll, yeah, have to ha- we'll have to have you back on again and actually discuss it in depth. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, if you're Ow. thinking of when do you want to watch Alien, I think our recommendation ah, yes. would be watch Alien and Aliens as a double feature. Um, yes. It'll make it easier to sleep afterwards. Yes. I would maybe suggest, like, I I enjoy a good horror movie, um, but even I would probably not watch Alien right before going to bed. Maybe I watched like Alien a at 2 in the morning. It yeah. was great. There's something <laughs> Big to be screen, said for that Big screen, all the lights off. <laughs> um, I kind of wanted you're... to play it up, but then I, I gave Twitter the choice of uh, having me live live tweet it or, or not. And I figured, I, I knew I would find it scarier if I wasn't live tweeting it. But I mm-hmm. I am a slave to the, the Twitter polls, so I ended up live tweeting it, which made it a lot easier for me to bear, I think. It was still very, like, tense in places. Yes. Uh, but, like, uh, this is how unlike... I got through Event Horizon. Unlike a lot of um, horror movies, this is actually a terrible option for like a sleepover or like <laughs> friends hanging out because it's genuinely so terrifying in a way that is inaccessible to riffing or um, yeah. group watch. Uh, so it's definitely something I'd suggest maybe watching on your own when you're in the mood for a particularly harrowing experience and then immediately follow it up with aliens because yeah. it'll just make the whole time better. Um, but- I'd say definitely watch it if you're like, um, if you're any sort of film student. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes. uh I, I feel like Alien almost benefits from doing some homework first because I think if I'd known that Sigourney Weaver was fully the least well-known member of the cast when the movie started, I would have been more on the lookout for what, at the time, the movie would have been trying to get across. Because uh, mm. I'm so intrigued by that misdirect at the beginning. But I don't have the context for it because, you know, pop culture osmosis has spoiled it. Like, obviously Ripley is the hero and everyone else is, you know, meat for the grinder. But like... Yes. <laughs> It would have been interesting to actually see that play out from a non-spoiled reset. Kind of like mm-hmm. watching Terminator 2 without knowing in advance who the actual bad guy is. Uh, right. You know, sometimes And that's kind of the, that's sometimes the difficulty of just time with these movies. Because, uh, yeah. you know, 
lot of movies from the, even the 70s and 80s that are coming out are are classics um but in becoming classics because they are just that good or that well made they sort of end up getting spoiled inherently yep. um yep. and if a spoiler ruins a movie there's probably a deeper flaw but um yeah. you can always recolor how you experience a movie the first time and that can in and of itself be a not necessarily a detriment but a change to the experience so going into this mm-hmm. with like more con- context can sometimes help you experience it in the same way that the people who made this movie uh as iconic as it was would have been experiencing yeah. it um i but would say said, watch alien if you want to ruin your day uh and yes. then watch alien and aliens back to back if you really want to like get the the proper you know the, the mm-hmm. full experience <laughs> of. i also yes. have one cute anecdote i wanted to share right before sure. we wrap it up which is yeah, that apparently perfect. my parents my parents saw aliens in theaters together on one of their earlier dates Aww. and uh, <laughs> it was very cute, but it's like it uh, it definitely left them glancing up at the vents a little more than before, <laughs> which I just thought was extremely cute. Yes. But uh, yeah, yeah. Alien yeah. is not a good group watching experience. Too much uh, paranoia and susness. Um <laughs> I'd, if you're doing a group space horror watch, watch Event Horizon. It's goofy as fuck. It's got some mm. scary moments, but mostly it's very stupid. Um. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Red, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us a very thorough, uh, a sec- yeah. our, you know, following the Jupiter Ascending episode. I think everyone who clicked on this knew what, exactly what they were in the in the mood for. Uh, but where <laughs> could where could folks times, find yeah. you if they wanted more from uh, Red? And you you alluded to your live tweets. So maybe let's plug your uh, <laughs> Twitter there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so mostly what I do is the uh, YouTube channel, Overly Sarcastic Productions. You know, I, I've been on the podcast before, so is Blue. We, we both, you know, do various uh, things there. Uh, uh, Sophia also runs the podcast affiliated with that channel, the Overly Sarcastic Podcast, where we hop on bi-weekly to talk about uh, recent videos and such like, uh, answer questions. Uh, I also, we have, a, we have a channel Twitter account that is mostly me. Uh, Blue mostly <laughs> yeah. uses our channel Instagram to post pictures of cats. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, most of the time it's just, like, occasional thoughts, but sometimes I'll just, like, completely drown the Twitter feed in, uh, live tweets. I usually do bad movie live tweets, but sometimes I also watch good movies on occasion. Mm. Um, <laughs> let's see, uh, Sophia and I are also together on the podcast Rolling with Difficulty, uh, which, uh, probably when this goes up, it, we've still got several episodes to go yeah, up. Yeah, it'll still be running. Up, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it's, uh, it's a lot, an actual play D&D podcast, uh, set in a version of the Planescape. It's very fun. Um... Yeah, so that's, uh, I think that's basically it. I hope I'm not forgetting anything. I have a comic, but I'm not really, this doesn't feel like the right place to plug that. <laughs> yeah, I brought well, that one up on the channel anyway. We'll fun. have uh, links to all of that in the show notes below, so go ahead and check it out. Um, I highly recommend Yay. the live tweet threads. They're very fun. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> quite enjoy hearing them out. Um, but Red, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks yeah. with another exciting installment of Movie Struck. Um, my cat is... Woo-hoo freaking out in the hallway so i'm gonna go deal with uh ziggy's problems hopefully there's no xenomorphs associated with it uh, i was gonna say like, <laughs> was, yeah yeah having a cat in the house would have made that much freakier to watch but thanks uh, yes. But yes uh and on that note, great. thanks uh, for having me yeah we'll, we'll sign out off thanks for coming heck yeah bye thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of movie struck We'll be back on February 21st talking about Sailor Moon R, the movie. But if you have any questions, comments, or concerns in the meantime, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. And for more from our guest, Red, check out the links to her other podcasts, YouTube channel, etc., social medias, all that fun stuff in the show notes below.